Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! All right, everybody, welcome to another fun episode of Knife Talk Podcast. This is Marco Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk knives, we talk about making knives, we try to answer questions, we uh, we take tips, uh, occasionally we do interviews, and uh, today, instead of normally being with Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives and Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, I'm here with my friend Kevin Pellegrino, aka Kasumi Kev on Instagram. He is a chef, a knife aficionado, stone sharpening maniac, he's even dabbled in knife making, uh, taking classes at CMA, that's Center for Metal Arts with Nick Anger. Uh, he's very talented, and I look forward to getting into conversation with him. But before we get started, uh, really quick, how you doing, Kev? How you feeling about this? You feeling great. Good? You feeling good? Yeah, I feel great. I feel good. Nice. Everything's great. I can't wait. I can't wait for our conversation. All right. Uh, it's, really it's, quick. Oh, yeah, go ahead. What's that? No, I was just going to say it's probably like the weirdest times in both of our lives. Oh, yeah. To be honest, and everything's just kind of, it's a, everything's, but I mean, to be honest, um, it's been like a month sabbatical for me right now. It's kind of nice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely talk about that a bit because uh, being in the industry you are in, it's, it's definitely taking, taking a toll as it is all, kind of all over the place. Um, how, uh, well, actually, before I start asking you how the last week's been uh, going for you, just really quick for everybody, I just want to, uh, remind everybody, uh, news wise, uh, reporting from Icebox Studios, this is the news, uh, Blade Show has adjusted and moved their dates up from the beginning of June to August 7th to 9th. 20 to 20 it's 2020 so uh for more information go to bladeshow.com you can also find them on instagram uh at blade show i believe is their handle uh other than that this there's basically no news i didn't mention though on the artisan steel calendar the april pinup is mr josh smith his birthday i tried to line everybody up with their birthday month and josh's was april fool's day first of april so jokes <laughs> on us uh <laughs> which nobody celebrated this year <laughs> yeah right it just it was like wasn't the time to be messing with people at all right yeah let's hope this is all just a terrible <laughs> joke sadly it's not <laughs> and so yeah with that uh let's get into the show so tell me mr kev okay you know i did a little uh intro to you and, and who you are and what you do uh, but tell me more about um you know how how did you get into this world where are you from how'd you get into knife making oh. Or not knife making, but being a, a super knife nerd and, and chefing and everything. Tell me about it. Oh, man. Well, it probably goes back to around uh, high school, I guess. I just started cooking in restaurants, you know. Mm. And uh, and by the time I was like 21, I was, well, first off, I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida. 
I, I didn't say All that. Right. Uh, I, I moved from I moved from Florida to uh, St. Louis when I was 14. My mom got a job up here, so we moved up here. So that was a big change. And then uh, I've been here ever since. I like St. Louis. So it's a good part of the country. I've heard it's a good area. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really pretty, actually. Like, especially where we live now. It's like out in the woods. There's big hills, lots of wildlife. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a, a nice, quiet place to live, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, I started cooking. And once I realized that college really wasn't a thing for me, I started kind of taking cooking a little more seriously and started managing some kitchens in my early 20s and stuff like that. And then I cut my finger a couple of times, like really bad. Like, like one time I cut the tip off pretty much. I'm still missing some of my fingernail area and stuff like that. And, and another time I, you know, I, I cut down into my bone in my middle finger and like halfway through it. And after I did that a couple of times, I was like, man, I should probably figure out how to sharpen my own knives and and do things like that. And that's really kind of how I got started. Okay. yeah. So, so getting cut wasn't a result of the knife being too sharp. Is because it was not sharp oh, enough. It it was a it was like a it wasn't you know it wasn't even my knife you know it was like something that was provided by a restaurant that came from a a, a knife store that they would interchange the knives every week and, and bring some you know what I'm saying and they're just yeah. like ground on a wheel real quick and yeah it was it was garbage you know and this was and this was before I really knew how to cook I would say too for the most part I was managing a kitchen but I really didn't know how to cook. I was just kind okay. of learning the more of the business aspect of a restaurant and how things should be ran and we you know all I that see. kind of stuff and that but I when it, when it came down to it I was not that great of a cook at all. I, and, I could cook volume yeah. not like I wasn't that good. Sure. And really quick hospi- were you going to school for hospitality or before you no, decided was, to go full full into kitchens? I, I was actually in community college and I was going to study music and then I realized oh, nice. I didn't know anything about music because I played drums growing up, but I didn't really learn anything about actual reading music. You know, I didn't I wasn't in like band or anything like that. Sure. And I realized that I was like, oh, man, this is way more intense than I, I, I I'm basically starting from scratch. And all these other people have been playing instruments for years, you know, <laughs> since and I was like, five. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, this is definitely not what I thought it was going to be. I'm I, I'm an idiot. So then I just jumped back into cooking, basically, like more so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, I, yeah, so I guess when I, I, I got one, one of my, one of my favorite jobs I ever had was this place called Five Bistro that was in, uh, uh, it's in this Italian neighborhood called the Hill in St. Louis. And it was like, it wasn't really, a, it was an Italian restaurant, but it wasn't like the themed Italian restaurants that are around the neighborhood, which okay. are more like just like St. Louis stereotype. They serve like this thing called toasted raviolis that are just, you know, just this silly thing that pretty much only happens in St. Louis with a couple other like silly food items that get made around here. Okay. But, uh, but this was like a, a really nice, like far, like small, like farm to table restaurant that did a lot of just really good food and everything was like 90% of everything we got came within like a hundred miles of the restaurant. It was really, that's what really opened me up to like fresh produce, like really fresh produce and stuff like that. And been really starting to learn more about the seasons of food and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, and that's when I my boss at the time had a, a lot of nicer Japanese knives that I had never seen before and started showing me like just, uh, you know, different websites that you could get these knives from. And I was like, what the hell? I've never fucking seen anything like these. Sure. And I and I just started getting obsessed with it. And then I started looking at price tags and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to afford any of these things. And then 
you know, over time, I, I think the first actual Japanese knife I got was uh, a Christmas gift from my mom. And that's like kind of what started the whole process of like learning to sharpen, I would say. Nice. Like the first handmade knife I got, I was like, well, okay, I got to figure out how to take care of this. And then really for like three years almost, I was just butchering the knife, you know, to be honest. Like sure. I, I, it took so, I didn't like, I didn't, I had a couple of people that like reached out to me in in the early years of my sharpening and kind of walked me through a lot of stuff. And they're like still my good friends to this day. And, uh, but besides that, I was like for two years, basically I was just murdering knives. Like they were not, they were, I was doing such a bad job trying to figure this stuff out. Sure. Well, and that's uh, part of the reason I'm really excited to have you on the podcast is because you've kind of, I can tell like with the level of, efficiency and skill that you've developed and just what you show on Instagram, I, I can tell that it's taken a lot of work and probably a lot of heartache to get to that point. And I also really am excited about uh, talking about knives kind of from an actual cook's or a chef's perspective. I don't know if you refer to yourself as a chef or a cook. I guess it depends on your role, wherever you're at. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, to, yeah. To, but to have an actual uh, professional um versus kind of like some of us dummies who like I, I cook at home but and I've cooked I've I've cooked in restaurants but I've never been the chef or I've never you know and uh so it's it's gonna be really I think it's gonna be really great to get your perspective on these things. Um really quick. Yeah so cooking with the seasons. I remember the f- first time I ever ate anything that was like very kind of locally sourced and didn't have to be uh like freeze packed or anything. Uh, uh-huh. the first time I ate that kind of food, it completely blew my mind because it was a, a collection of flavors that I had never, ever experienced before. Even like the first burger I ever had, I still remember uh, it was like from a farm that was literally just a couple miles down the road. Um, so super, super fresh, super local. Um, and, yeah, and it just uh, tasted like beefier, didn't it? Yeah, it just, it tasted, I, it, like it was it t- one of the, this, this, this thing happens to me when I eat food that I've never like just completely blows me away where I like the first bite I take the first thought in my head is what the fuck just happened? And <laughs> this is something completely different than anything I've ever experienced before. And that's yeah, why I it know could something be special something, is something you've, it could be something you've had 20 times, but sure. it, just because of how fresh and how, how it was raised and everything else, it can really be a new experience for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can, I can definitely, I can definitely relate to that. And that being kind of a, kind of a, a shift, a complete shift in perspective and par- like a paradigm shift, I guess, if you want to be smart about yeah. words. Um, yeah. And okay. I worked, I worked there yeah. for like four years. It was, it was definitely one of my most favorite jobs. I got to do like whole animal butchery and stuff like that. And, you know, it was just a lot of fun. Every, yeah. everything we made from scratch. So did you come up to become like his Sue or what, where did you end up with that? And cause it sounds like it was pretty formative experience for you. Um, you know, it was really, uh, it was me and the owner and this guy, Mark and okay. my wife, my wife was my girlfriend at the time. She started working there maybe eight months after me as the okay. pastry chef oh, and nice. a dishwasher. It was very small. And it wasn't really like we didn't really care about titles or anything like that. It was like, you know what, there's three or four of us here. So it's like time to get work done. And everyone's held accountable because we all know what we need to do. And it was that's that was what's really nice about it. Yeah. 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 You you have to work as a team. Yeah. Yeah. And it was only dinner. 
There was no lunch. You know, it was just like, great, we're going to cook dinner five nights a week. It was a fun job. And then I, another one that really taught me more, a lot about just vegetables and produce and things is I worked at a place called Claverack Farm, which is actually like probably like five miles from where I live now, mm. which used to be like a half hour outside the city for me. Sure. And, uh, and I, I worked there for almost two, two years, I think, two and a half years. And it was like literally we just did dinners on Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. And I worked four days a week there and we would just prep and cook everything from the farm and we would source meat from farms around us and we had our own eggs from our own chickens there and that was like just the most fun really you could ever have as a cook right well and when you're and when you're only doing dinner uh, it creates so much more opportunity throughout the day to be creative and and really kind of work out some interesting food and and really kind of focus in instead of having kind of a broader vision of what we need to achieve. I've worked in places where, you know, the fucking sports bar had like 50 items on the menu. And I'm yeah, just like, what the fuck? This doesn't make any sense. One, it's a huge pain in the ass. Two, it's usually like a giant menu in a tiny ass kitchen with like 12 people in it. And, and there's not enough room. There's, you know, there's never enough storage for all the different things. And I, you know, I can I remember the first time I went to a place that had a limited menu and it wasn't because they were trying to be cool. It's just like, they were just being smart about, you know, just do a few things and do them really fucking well. And uh, yep. I think that's the best restaurants I've ever eaten at. were like that. It's because they can really focus in on doing those few things extremely well, better than anybody else in the area. And I think that's the key. Oh yeah. I, at least that I've ever I, experienced in, in, in there's like two rules of thumb for me for like restaurants in general. And, and that's one of them. It's like the menu has to be relatively small. Otherwise, I it doesn't it doesn't seem focused enough, you know, like right. there's not enough focus going into each dish. And the other thing is, is that they can't be too big either, because once you get too much volume, unless you just got a bunch of super bad motherfuckers working for you, which is not usually the case, you know, <laughs> sure. Uh, it's it's just really hard to be – I mean there's some restaurants that do like huge volume and that are fucking super high class. But I mean right. that's few and far between. So once you hit like 60, 70 seats, you start getting higher than that. It's going to be hard to really be good at what you do in my opinion. Sure. I think, the, I think the, the magic number for seats is like 60 and under for like awesome restaurants in my yeah. opinion. Mm, that right. and small menu. And small menu. Yeah, well, and I think – too many places and you know sports bars they're trying to attract as many people as possible and so they're trying to appeal to as many people as possible with their menu but the better restaurants you know they stay focused and and narrow so that you know they don't need everybody to come back every single night yeah i think actually the best restaurants realize that there's a rotation and not everybody wants to eat their food their particular menu every single night they want to go to other Mm -hmm. places you know but give them a reason to come back by creating some of the best food that, you know, creating food that those people cannot cook at home for themselves. I think that's late, like in the last few years, I struggle to go out because in my local area, you know, there's some good spots, but the, you know, there's a lot of places that are trying too hard to be super cool. And I go and I eat their food. And I'm just like, shit, man, I could have cooked this at home. What the fuck am I doing yeah. here? <laughs> Spending like four times, five times as much on something I could have just made at home. And it's not even like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's the, but it's the ambiance and the experience and you don't have to cook. And I'm just like, I would have actually rather have cooked and done all of this as a dinner party at home. <laughs> it would have been a lot cheaper. It would have been a lot more fun. I don't know. So that's where I'm at with going out to restaurants but, uh, lately. 
the the last like two and a half years of my life, I've been working for the same people, which has like been my pretty much my all time favorite job. And sure. we and it's where I've been. I've been. Uh, it was a neat place called Niponte and Ramente, and then we opened this other place called Indo, and and everything was like. Like, that's the one thing that really sucks about all this pandemic for our little restaurant group is, like, everything sure. was just, like, hitting stride. Like, we just Ugh. got, you know, like, a bunch of, like, he just got two James Beard nominations. Uh, uh, he just, we just got number three in the, in the city from the food writer at the, at the Post-Dispatch here, which mm-hmm. was, and we just opened, like, six months prior, so that was, like, a big deal. And then we, and then there's a couple other little things that are coming out this month, too, that I'm not even supposed to talk about yet. And sure. and everything was like hitting our stride just right, and then everything's like okay, shut it down. <laughs> it was right. like oh my god, what just happened? Yeah, that's but a, uh, and that's that a fucking kicking it. Indo's really fun place to work. We just do like like Southeast Asian food and like sushi, and it's just and we got like a an awesome cast of characters that work there, and it's uh it's just it's it's definitely the most fun I've had at a job ever in my life, and I've been cooking almost twenty four years now. Right. Yeah, so I've seen uh, you post videos on your Instagram of you slicing up onions and all kinds of herbs and stuff. Um, yeah, or like green. Is is that for endo? Is that where you're doing that? Uh huh. Nice. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, like me, me and my buddy Mark and, and Nick, and then a whole other cast of characters uh, all work there. And uh, yeah, I'm like the, I'm just like the AM, like kind of like sous chef, but we don't really talk about sous chef words really you know just like sure it's another it's another place where everyone is uh almost all the same age i'm the oldest person it's kind of weird it's the first time in my life i'm 39 <laughs> years old and okay. it's the first time in my life where i'm like the oldest person in the restaurant it's like what the hell is going on around me you know <laughs> it's 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 a it's an eye-opening experience it's like holy shit like you're 20 what anyway right. And it, it, it's like, oh my god, I'm so old. But so I, and that's, and I've worked it out with my buddy Nick, the owner, and uh, and he's just like, got me on day shifts, and I just come in and I get all the prep done. They they make a list at night, and we get right. all the as much prep as we can done. And I leave usually around three three thirty every day, and go home and cook dinner with my wife and help her do whatever she needs to do. She's a private chef as well. She's a sure. She's a badass motherfucker herself. Nice. She's awesome. Yeah, and luckily she so she's a private chef and so she's still working right now. And uh oh, okay. I've just been like I've been like her little bitch boy sous chef and uh <laughs> I, I tell her it's like you make me a list in the morning and I'll I'll cut all your all your fucking knees for you. I don't care, I'll do all that. I'll get it all done. And then I'm right. like her personal driver now. I'll just drive her for her deliveries and drop off food to these these families that she cooks for. Sure. You just she's said been doing that... that for like eight years. Nice. You just said mise. So can you explain really quick, I'm, you know, especially a lot of makers, I'm sure, hopefully are trying to figure out, especially if they're getting in the chef's knives, uh, you know, what, or they're probably seeing mise or mise en place. You know, what does that mean for those people who are just learning these terms? Uh, well, really, it means, uh, it, it means everything leading up to when you open. It's if everything leading up to that getting everything done and put in the in the exact spot that you want it that way when you when you go to make a turn to add an ingredient to whatever you're cooking you know exactly it's like muscle memory you know what i'm saying right and when and when you have a when you have a certain style about how you set up your station and and and, and when you when you start getting around like real good cooks like everyone's different and and you don't really try to change that about them unless it's like just super sloppy bullshit but if they're neat <laughs> and they're orderly you know what i'm saying those are the difference yeah. like if they're organized but they're set they're putting their six pan in one spot and you put yours in another 
It's like, I don't give a fuck where you put it. You're, that's your station. I put it where you got it. And if it works for you, it works for you, you know? Right. But, uh, but that's, that's what mise en place is to me. It's like everything leading up to when you open, like make sure it's fucking right. Make sure it's done. That's sure. it. Well, and I think it, it, it's the same thing kind of with people's workshop or any kind of kind of workspace in general, I think, is having everything in its place uh, so that oh, when yeah. you need it, it's you know where it's at exactly. And I guarantee, you know, I've been in a lot of different workshops, uh, bladesmith shops, and it's interesting. It's always interesting to see how people have their shops organized, uh, even just how they have their anvil set up in relation to their forge. Um to figure out, you know, for their own workflow and, and, and to ask them questions about that stuff. So yeah, mise en place means, uh, kind of everything in its place, everything prepped and everything in its place. Yeah. I, I used to get to, when I would go to the restaurant, uh, that one of those last jobs I was working at that sports sports bar in Denver, I would get there at, at least an hour early because, <laughs> uh, unfortunately we didn't have a strong st- team, uh, uh, kind of brigade and so you know i always had to make sure i had all my own stuff stocked and prepped and ready and stuff which realistically Uh you should be doing in a restaurant um yeah um but yeah just i and i always i had to i was always reorganizing like the six pans and everything because i had my own particular workflow and i would put like ingredients that weren't used very often up in like the top left corner because i knew i wasn't going to be reaching up there very often or one thing stacked on top of the over the other because you know you don't want to accidentally drop one into the other, but if you drop the other, drop it the other way, it doesn't really matter or something. Oh like yeah, that, but... totally. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of craziness, as you mentioned, and it's it's obviously had an effect on you. Can you go a little deeper on how this is how this has been affecting you and kind of the 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 restaurant business in general? I don't know uh, how how you've been keeping up with how it's affecting other restaurants and chefs. But can you? I would love to hear your perspective on how oh, this is man. hitting restaurants. Well, you know, it's just uh, it was. It, I'm, I mean, I've, I've never experienced anything like that. I mean, and I know everyone can say the same exact thing, but like, sure. it's it's sure. just like the way the economy that is like a train like ran into a mountain. You know, it was like boom, everything's done. See you later. Right. Uh, and we were like, so like initially we closed for like two two to three days, and we're like, okay, so they'll let us sell to go food. So we we started doing that. And then the news just kept getting worse and worse over like the next two weeks. And we were busy. We were, we were doing great. Like it was awesome. But at the same time, it was like, there was like, you know, 10 to 12 people coming into that building every day and working and, you know, doing their best to keep everything clean. And, but it still like seemed like kind of, it was like getting kind of risky. So we just decided to close it down. Cause like, you, you just don't know where people are going outside of work and, Right. You know how the restaurant business is, dude. Like there's some people that will will just, you know, go fuck off when and not take things too seriously, whatever. A bunch it is. of fucking dirt bags is what they are. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but you know, and then but over like but as as like those two like it was those first two weeks of where things kind of shut down where I pe- people were yeah. still like, "Ah, this is silly." And then after that it was like, "Maybe this is getting serious." And everyone's finally like settled down, I feel like. But uh, so we just kind of shut it down for a little bit, but there's still restaurants doing, they seem to be doing really well actually for the to-go stuff, but I'm sure it's hard. It's, it's so weird, man. And there, there's no, nobody's, you know, kept all their employees on. I I mean, I'm on unemployment right now and luckily I'm lucky to be on unemployment because I hear so many horror stories about people that haven't got their unemployment yet. And I'm just like, God, at least, at least I have that going for me right now. And it's a, it's a huge help. But uh, I think that we're going to try to open back up 
in the next couple of weeks and start doing more to goes. Sure. Once uh, once the numbers like trend in the right direction. Right. But I, I don't know. I I haven't talked to any of the the owners about business stuff in in weeks. To be honest, I haven't. You know, since we closed, basically, we've just been talking about normal stuff. You know. Sure. Everyone's sure. trying to just stay healthy. <laughs> it's right, such a right. it's such an odd experience. It's it's. I, and I, I'm I'm so lucky that we moved to this house in December because before this we lived in a very like kind of claustrophobic neighborhood almost that was like my our neighbors were like six feet away from our our house basically and it was oh. a, a like 800 square foot house and I if we would have been in quarantine in that little place we probably would have went insane to be honest and we just moved sure. out to the woods and we have three acres and all you hear is birds and, and it's like a bird sanctuary when you walk outside on the deck and it's like oh man oh, it's man. not the worst place to be right now you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel, I saw you I feel doing super some lucky. <laughs> yeah, I saw you doing some cooking the other day on your Weber, uh, on your patio, and it just yeah, it looks like there's nothing but trees <laughs> when you look yeah, out your like, patio. The town that I live in is called Wildwood, like literally that's okay. the name of the town, and for that and it's for that reason. It's like it's like rolling hills that have like valleys that are probably like 400 feet of elevation and the top of the hills like 850 900 to a thousand right. it's like at the start of the ozark mountains in missouri basically okay and it's like all kinds of wildlife i saw a fox this morning when i went to walk my dog i mean it's crazy oh, nice. i love it it's like you yeah. see all kinds of crazy shit i found a deer skull last week when i was hunting for morels that's what one thing that i have been able to do and see a couple of friends i'll just be like hey do you guys want to like come walk around in the woods for an hour or two and they'll be like yeah okay and that's the only time i see anybody Right. And uh, and I found one morel, but we're getting a bunch of rain tomorrow and today, and then it's supposed to get a little warmer. So I think my uh, my backyard could start popping with those in the next week, sure. hopefully. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how long after that kind of rain do they start, par- start popping? Uh, it, I think it has a lot to do with how warm it gets right after it. Okay. It's been a nice it's been a nice spring here. Like usually you can get kind of warm quick in St. Louis, but it's been nice and cool and like barely hitting 70 degrees for almost a month. It's kind of nice. This oh, is the wow. first rain we've had in a couple of weeks too, which I think yeah. kind of slowed down the morels in my part of the in my part of the woods anyway. But it's so nice to go hiking back there and stuff. Love it. Um so how do you see restaurants do you I mean do you think things will just go back to normal? Because uh, my concern no. and stuff I've heard is, you know, people's cons- people's uh, ability to feel comfortable and confident that they can just go sit down in a restaurant is going to, you know, I'm sure that confidence has been completely shattered um, for the most yeah. part. So how does it's that not... affect restaurants who, who rely on, uh, you know, uh, flipping covers, you know? Um, you know, do they transition into kind of a, 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 a basically a curbside takeaway, like order online? Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, you know, what do you think? I, well, I definitely think that we won't see any kind of real normal restaurant for probably a year and a half, if sure. I had to guess. <laughs> wow. It's, and that's something weird to say out loud. And I, and I talk to my wife about it like every couple of days. Cause I'm just like, I just really can't believe what's going on. Right. But, uh, it's, I mean, yeah, dude. I mean, like, first off, there won't be any bars for a long time because there's no way that people are going to sit directly next to one another. They won't even allow it for a long time. Sure. But so then they'll have tables. If they do open, they'll have tables that are spaced out. I mean, I just saw this thing on the news the other day where, like, they showed a diagram of people that were in a restaurant in Wuhan, and one person had the virus, and like seven other people got it from tables that were like not even that close. 
because of the sure. air, because of because of the central air, apparently. And it's like, okay, so if there's going to be more news articles like that coming out, no one's going to want to go eat in a restaurant at all. Right. And I think I think you're, you're going to see a lot of people having to to do simpler food, almost in a way, and food that travels well, and and doing a lot of to go curbside service. There's going to be a lot of that, sure. I think. You might even see people like dedicating their whole like parking lot to it if they can, just like you know, pull up and have a little. I don't know. Oh my god! I, I just mean, got the, the image of like the drive-in restaurant becoming popular. Again. Yeah, everybody's just staying yeah, in your right? fucking car. <laughs> yeah, we'll bring the food to you. <laughs> like starting best hanging on the window right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Like I, I mean, because yeah, there's no. I mean, dude, I, I don't know, dude. I don't, I don't. I, I don't even like going shopping for food. Sure. I, I, that's the one thing I will say. Like I've I've never been more paranoid in my life, to be honest. Just mm, about getting yeah. sick. I have asthma too, you know. So like sure. that scares me. This thing, this whole thing, scares me enough just because I have asthma, and a couple of my good friends do too. And it's like, man, like I feel pretty healthy for the most part, and just like, and I and I definitely don't ever really get sick that often. So like, I feel like my immune system is really good. Like I have like perfect yeah. attendance at work for like the, almost the last ten years. I would say. Unless oh, wow. it was like a physical injury, like yeah, my, it's sure. one thing my my boss like my, likes to make jokes about. It's like Kevin's like never been late ever, and it's yeah. true. I've, I've called once. I called once. I was like, dude, I might be five minutes late, and I ended up being five minutes early. And he's like, you're an asshole. And I was like, I really <laughs> thought I was going to be late. <laughs> I was so scared. That's funny. But that's that's one thing I'm like super like super uh, like that's probably one of my most like like big, biggest pet peeves is being punctual, dude. I I cannot stand that oh, shit. shit. Oh man, yeah. I, I get like super stressed out if I feel like I'm going to be late to any event, and it could be like just you know my whatever any a stupid appointment that doesn't even matter, and I would still feel terrible if I was late. Yeah. It's a weird thing for me. Yeah, I used to struggle with that a lot because I was like, my time is my time, and you <laughs> know, I'm I'm just there to work to do the bare minimum basically and get paid. Uh, but it it definitely shifted at. I didn't even know the exact point, but where, like I was saying, like I was showing up the restaurant an hour, half an hour early just to make sure my shit was stocked. And I wasn't dealing with that when I was like, and I was doing that off the clock. Right. Yeah. And just to make sure I was ready um, because I just didn't want it to be more, more of a pain than I, than oh, I yeah. needed to be. And I would, and I, very often, you know, you know, uh, the, like I said, there was like 10, guys in the kit in this tiny ass like literally like 200 square foot kitchen uh full of like low boys and racks and hot side cold side all that shit um you know they would start peeling people off at around like nine o'clock and usually at 10 o'clock there would be this stupid rush and the kitchen was open until midnight and so you know i would stay and i would just help restock and clean while those whoever was there was like cooking because doing that on top of the cleaning work is the worst and so yeah oh yeah i worked at a i worked at like the busiest steakhouse for four years called the place called annie guns and we that was that that was the worst like tear down of a kitchen that you would do every night that i'd ever seen in any restaurant in my life it was and it like i was i started there i was think i was 28 when i left i was 32 and my hands now are probably five times stronger than they were when I left there. Like my hands felt like they were dying because of how hard the work was at the end of the night. It was crazy. It was crazy, dude. I was like, dude, I'm like, I'm like 30 and I feel like my hands are going to fall off. Like what is going on? 
And I right. realized it was just because of how hard that job was at the end of the night. We like yeah. we would take the stove apart, we would take the grill completely apart. We would take right. we would drain and strain the fires every night. We would pull the kitchen out every night and clean the back wall every night. Yep. We would wow. empty out all everything and put like all the coolers up on the line were emptied and cleaned every night and put in the sure. walk-in. It was insane. It was oh, a, wow. it was That's a intense. It, Dude, it was crazy. And that was it's just literally like one of the busiest and you know what's crazy? It's like they had like eight servers there that tested positive for the COVID. Oh, because it was like it's like the Perfect. clientele there is like super high class, like like not high class, but like just rich ass people basically. Definitely, and they, yeah, yeah, and I, and like one of my friends who's a server there, I I know a bunch of people still work there, and he was like, yeah, one of my customers was like, yeah, we just got back from Europe, and this was like you know, like early March, and they were like, uh, oh, why are you here, you know, and. And turns out, like, yeah, dude, some 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 people went there and got some uh, restaurant employees sick for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the positive things of doing uh, curbside and kind of uh, like pre-order. Are you familiar? You must be familiar with like, uh, oh shit, oh like uh, the meal prep business model, where basically people like pre-order a day or two ahead, and then you can. Uh, at least one place who the the place I'm most familiar with is my buddy Neil. His wife works for uh, a meal prep business, and basically their customers order like on Sunday for the next week, and and then they just kind of they they uh, buy the food they need and stuff as it's needed and that way they're not just kind of guessing they, you know they got they're all on top of their pars and so there's no like basically there's no food waste. Um, because they know exactly what they need. And if, you know, they estimate a little over, um, because they do get some people walking in asking about food or, you know, a customer might say, Oh, I think I need an extra meal or something like that. Um, but I mean, maybe, maybe that could be one positive side <laughs> for restaurants mm -hmm. as a business in general of doing kind of like this curbside takeaway or, uh, or like a meal prep pre-order situation. I mean, to be honest, like our the way the way we were running it, like we cut the cooks' hours in in like almost half, almost, and okay. we were open from noon noon to eight, and okay. we were just doing to goes and like the way we set it up and we like you know shrunk up the menu and just kind of made things that traveled well, and we were still serving some raw fish because people just they'll eat it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the people love. It. We're like we're, we're the best sushi spot in St. Louis. Like no one really competes around for sushi. That's oh, for nice. sure. Yeah. So like we just we just people and dude we got all the rad fish there. I've done I've done a lot of fun fish butchery over the last couple of months. Killer. And I, I miss that too. I miss I miss like butchering fish. I miss all that stuff, dude. It sucks. I want to see <laughs> I'm more not of that. Any of my single. Right. Yeah. When you get back in there, I want to see more of that on your Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that will, I'll just have to like set it up live because like once you get started, it's like oh yeah, me You're and not my buddy touching your phone, the owner. <laughs> Yeah, we're not yet yeah, exactly. And it's like, dude, we'll do like me and him one day. I think we did like 43 fish or something. It was it was oh, so much fun. And most of them are like little tiny, like Japanese, like, like, you know, really soigne nice fish like Notoguro right. or, you know, Madai's and uh, Itoyori Dai, all these like little like deep uh, sea snappers and little little like white fish that are just super fatty and delicious. Nice. Well, when it gets to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go I, was, ahead. I was just going to say, so you've, so you've also been to kind of shift gears a little bit. You've been collecting knives now for a while. Uh, how, like, how did you start learning more about knives? Um, 
Because I'm sure, like, when it comes from kind of like uh, the collector's uh, end of the spectrum, you want to make sure that whatever you're buying isn't a piece of shit. So where were you learning about knives? Uh, I'm familiar with the kitchen knife forums, but is that the main place or are there other places where people... Because I, I, oh, I think there's man. an opportunity also First for off- chef's knife makers to learn more about knives before they even start really kind of changing things. And oh, yeah. Getting into it. I, I, I just got lucky. I feel like the right people, like maybe five years ago, like reached out to me because they, I think they just thought I was funny on, on Facebook or Instagram. And they were like, like my, my, my one buddy, Jeremy, he lives up in Canada. I, oh, yeah. I don't even exactly know how we started interacting. He started following me because I, I, I cooked food and I posted food pics and knife pics basically on Instagram. And one day I, I posted a picture of my cicada that I have and I thought I thought I did a good job sharpening it. So I posted okay. it. I was like, yeah, it's sharp. It's murder sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then he sent me a private message and I'll never forget this. And he goes, yo, what's up with your fucking cicada? And I was like, Oh no! What? And because I I looked at this dude's page and I was like, man, his polishes are like superb. They look really nice. Sure. Yeah. And and I'm like, I was like, uh oh. So I guess I didn't do a good job. And he busted my balls for it. And then that kind of started like this friendship that like I would just start asking him questions every second I I, I could think of one, you know. And he was sure. always that. And he lived up in Toronto, you know. He's or like just outside of Toronto. Sure. And I and I actually met him finally after like four years for the first time, like a year and a half ago. We went up there and I, I met a couple people. But like, yeah, I just had these like certain people that would reach out. And then I, I went and my buddy owns uh, Carbon Knife Co. in Denver, which is an awesome knife store and like oh, chef nice. store in yeah, Denver. Yeah, I've heard of them. And I when they opened, my parents lived in, in Colorado for almost 20 years. So I was like, yo, I'm about to go out there for Christmas, and uh, I'm probably going to drop some money in your store, to be honest, because this is the first store that's been anywhere near my house that sells this kind of stuff, and I'm ready to buy something. And he was like, awesome. So we went out there, and, and ever since then, I've been friends with that dude. I, I talk to him almost every day. Him and, nice. him and his wife, Tina, they're so nice. They run, a, they run a really, really awesome business, and they just – they're just super cool people. And, and so if I had any questions or like he, I have him sometimes when he goes to Japan twice a year, sometimes, and I'll be like, if you see a stone that you think I might like, you know, just let me know. And <laughs> I, and I, and that's, yeah, there's just, there's, there's a weird, there's, the knife community, I'm sure you, you can attest to this is it's very like, they're like, if you're in it, like you definitely know there's certain people that are, they're, they're, there's plenty of, first off, there's plenty of opinions. No doubt about oh, yeah. that. <laughs> sure. Um, fucking plenty of that going on and you know and most of them don't don't use knives enough to really have an opinion in my opinion and that's that's where i kind of draw the line with some of these dudes sure. but most most of the people that i've come across are so awesome and and so just like into the knives and into into cooking food at home and, and doing that thing that aren't like chefs the guys that are into knives and are chefs and that that sharpen really well too like those those dudes are like my favorite of all you know like because right. they're just like i feel like they're just like me they're like like what, once you start taking yourself that seriously at work and where you like, I, if I, if I show up to work, and my knife isn't sharp. I really do feel like I failed myself in a way. And it's not sure. because like anyone else is making me do that. It's just like, I have an expectation for myself every day when I go into work that I need to perform at the highest level because I just, I, otherwise, why am I doing it at this point? I've been doing it for 24 years. And if I'm not going to like at least try my best every day, then I should definitely fucking, you know, find another job. Right. Well, it's kind of like part of that mise en place, right? Is yeah, just exactly. making sure your like, knife sir- is ready for to work. Me, yeah. Service is always the easiest part of the, the restaurant business for me. Like, it, it doesn't matter how busy it is because leading up to it, as long as you have everything you need, 
service is just you know turning in circles and making flames every now and then that's it dude. it's easy <laughs> sure. that's it <laughs> i just got this image of you like in a in a tutu uh oh, slinging dude, knives I, I and flames so going up <laughs> i talk so much shit in the kitchen that's why i just posted about it yesterday because i miss dude we have like so much trash talkers in our kitchen and oh, we sure. just all we just, we all just light each other up and like no one's ego is too big not to just take it and laugh so we just have so much fun nice. and i and i i miss it and and i love all the time that i have at home and like i i really because you I, I play drums too now w- once i moved into this house i i hadn't played drums basically in 20 years because i never had a place where i could play that wouldn't just annoy my neighbor you know or whatever i was living in con- uh, apartments and stuff for a long time yeah so never had a place to play until december and now it's like i play two hours a day and it's like meditation oh wow it's so awesome it's so, so awesome you, dude so you just had that kit sitting around for the last 20 I had years that, well i well well actually the the kit that i had from high school that i spent that's what i worked basically i worked in high school to pay for my drum my drums and i probably spent sure. like five grand in high school on my drums oh wow and and i uh what when I was like twenty, I I was living with these punk rockers, and I let somebody, I let it stay at this house, and then it disappeared basically. And Ugh. I almost, I'm, uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, so no one knows where it is. Great, great. Basically, Super it was cool. it was a dark time in my life. The early twenties, you know, <laughs> bad decisions <laughs> were made. I guess. Sure. I'm like, don't leave your drum set anywhere. You know. Yeah. But then I found one for cheap, and then I just every time I saw, I would just keep eyes out for things. Like you know, I got my double bass pedal like probably twelve nice. years ago, and I never used it. But I saw one that was cheap on Craigslist. So I'm like, I'm just gonna buy this just in case I ever play. And right. and it turns out it, it, it worked out good. And then like I've been cooped up, and so I just you know, I I just tra- I I just met this awesome symbol maker that uh, lives up in uh, Montreal. His name's Philippe. Uh, mm-hmm. He makes these rad symbols, and I, I started following him, and I commented on one of his things. He sends me a message. He's like, yo, where should I get a knife from? I was like, well, I'm about to sell a couple. You want to look at them? And so we just traded a symbol for a knife, and it's like, great. This is nice. awesome. Love it. I can't wait for that to come, actually. Sure. I got too many knives. I need I, I need to sell a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, you sent me some videos last night, and I just kind of like paused them every once in a while, and I think I came up to almost 40 knives. Yeah. Yeah. Well then, it's also, I mean, and then we also I also do the the Kamadi knives as well with my my partner in Europe and then our our blacksmith who lives over in Russia. Right. And uh, right. so and I, I wanna, have I, wanna I, I didn't even show you what's going you. on in the garage. Sure. I got a I got a bunch of stuff out there too. Yeah. Nice. Well, I definitely want to get into that. Um, but I I, I want to tie up so really quick to finish uh like figuring out about how to learn about chef's knife. So for a maker, if they want to find a resource, do you have any ideas where either people are happy to give their opinion or people to reach out to, um, and places to go, uh, like forums, like the only place when I first started getting, you know, I had my own experience from cooking and working mm-hmm. for Bob Kramer. But when I struck out on my own, that was the first time I really started joining like kitchen knife forums and other kit like kitchen oriented forums uh to try to just to get a feel for what people were looking for and what they felt uh performed the best uh what are your opinions on where chef's knife makers can go to learn more about that stuff or even like sh- knives that they could possibly you know get a hold of as a model and as a and as an example of an ideal uh kind of geometry and blade shape uh to to model their work off of, especially when they're first starting, um, yeah. 
Oh man. Well, for me, like, see, I, I've over, over the years, I've kind of, everything's kind of gone in this one direction to where I like a very specific style of knife. Okay. And there's, there's certain dudes out there that make these in it. And, and you know what it is, basically it's San Mai with some kind of soft iron and then a nice core steel basically. And it's, and it's usually like a, a KU or just like a rough finish on the, on the outside of it. And that's it. And the only reason I, the only reason I've really gravitated towards that, because for me being like a, like using my whetstones and polishing, it's like the easiest way to clean up, clean up a knife quickly and thin it and polish it and sharpen it and be done with it. Instead right. of having to like, when I thin behind the edge resistant. on a knife that's, yeah. And yeah. And it's like, if you have a, a knife that's hand sanded all the way up and you want to thin behind the edge, you, you need to refinish it. Otherwise you're just going to look at it and be like, Oh, look at these scratches I did thinning behind my edge. Cause that, that a lot of people, when they sharpen their knife, they just sharpen the edge and they sharpen the edge and they sharpen the edge and sure. then they sharpen the edge again. And by the time you do that three or four, four or four, you know, three, four, five times, the knife geometry is much different in my opinion. And you'll yeah, start you've noticing you've how it doesn't cut primary, the Yeah. You've pushed that primary bevel up into thicker, into basically a thicker cross section of the blade. And so what you're talking about when you refer to thinning, oh, is that your little Ewok? Yeah, he was sleeping, <laughs> not making a sound, and then he just heard something. I think it was the trash man, to be honest. Shut oh, yeah. up. <laughs> so it's it's fine, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I think that's something a lot of people don't really think about, especially makers who are first getting the chef's knives, is the idea that the knives ultimately will need to be thinned over time because, as like you were saying, you sharpen it repeatedly, you're pushing that geometry up into thicker material and eventually it needs to be thin so it continues to perform properly as a chef's knife right? yeah and and that's why i like wide bevel knives because basically what happens is the maker has laid out a a road map for you on what mm. to follow and how to follow it you know what i'm saying and and for me that's the easiest way for someone to learn how to sharpen more like cause for me sharpening is like how how the whole knife shapes up it's not just the edge sure. like like when I sharpen an edge, it takes me like, you know, five, six minutes and I do a, a thousand grit stone and then a finishing stone and that's it. But yeah. the, the most of my work is done the hour, hour and a half before is starts on a 200 grit stone and it's shaping the bevel and basically removing the micro bevel I had before and trying not to lose any height on the knife in the process. That's that's right. the ultimate goal is to when you sharpen the knife is to remove as much metal from the sides as you can. And, and removing the bare minimum of the actual bottom as you can. So From you the retain the height. Yeah, yeah you yeah. retain the height much longer period. And that's like one of the, like the first two knives that I had, I didn't know anything about thinning at all. And that, that's like when, it, when I was like, okay, so I've been doing this wrong the whole time after like three years. And I, and I really got to beat myself up over it. I was like, what a fucking idiot am I? God damn. <laughs> like I've just been over here ruining shit for three years. And then, and then my friend told me like, well, I, cause I started getting kind of good at polishing on the right side. And I was like, well, how do you get the left side to look good? And he's like, oh, you got to switch hands. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? I was like, I got to learn. I got to learn how to do this with my left fucking hand. Are you serious? And then I was like, okay, well, here we go. So then, I, yeah. and then that took me like, you know, a good nine months to get good with my other hand for polishing. Sure. I don't sharp, I don't sharpen the edge. I don't switch hands, but when I'm polishing sure. the bevels, I, I'll switch hands just to, cause it's just the way that, you know, lining up scratch patterns and whatnot. Right. No, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. But cool. uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just uh, for for me, it's like so. Like I like the Sanjo style knives. Uh, the the knives that come out of Sanjo usually are like a a little bit thicker. S A N J O, I believe. Okay. 
And then like like makers from from that area, I think like Shigifusa and uh, Kato and uh, Mizaki, all these guys have like really nice taper. And I think I don't think Yoshikani's from there. I think he's from somewhere else. I can't remember exactly. It's hard sure. to keep up. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, these makers all have really nice like uh, uh, distal taper out of the handle. So like the knife is could be anywhere from like like Kato and Mizaki. Some of their like bigger like 240 gyotos they can be five six millimeters thick right out of the handle and then right. at, at the tip i mean a centimeter up from the tip it's like under a millimeter it's like super thin and it's Holy like a shit. nice gradual taper all the way down and you're like whoa dude like how the fuck did this dude do this and it's super right. impressive but i like knives like that because they're still nice and stiff because the way i the way i use my knife i rub it on that same middle finger finger uh, knuckle and that's the other reason right. i don't like uh, hand sanded knives as much because I like the rougher finish on the knives that I have because I can feel it on my knuckle at any mm. given point much more. Like that little extra friction lets me know like when I get too high and I reach my bevel or something like that and I, I, I feel the difference and I, I stop myself. Like I don't cut myself nearly as much as I used to, you know, 15 years ago. From your fingers slipping up to the heel is what you're saying. Yeah, like when I'm ra- raising the knife back up, like if I feel like something like that isn't like that KU or like Nashi finish, yeah. it's uh, I feel it and I stop myself. I'm like, ooh, I'm too high. Like I'm, if I would have came back down, I would have cut into my knuckle. You know what I'm saying? Right. And right. with a with a polished knife, that feels different. Like it all kind of feels the same. So like when you're doing a bunch of shit at once, you're not really thinking about cutting. You're just cutting and kind of like doing prep work and cooking lunch at the same time. And like that little extra friction, like helps you focus on what you're doing and still doing other things. It just helps multitask in a way for me. I know it's like kind of anally detailed, but like, I really, I really believe that there's a difference with a textured when the knife has a little bit more texture where you're rubbing it on your hand. I feel like it's safer almost in a way. Yeah. It's that tactical feedback. Yeah. And it's, I have like a callus right there too. Like where my knife rubs. And if I used a polished knife, it probably wouldn't be like that to be honest. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's actually going oh. away because I don't use my knife as much anymore. Uh oh. You have to yeah. get that get that callus back. Um, Dude, I don't have man. a reason to cut like thirty quarts of cabbage right now. <laughs> <laughs> you just start making a bunch of kimchi. Yeah, I know. Actually, that would make my wife really happy. I should do that. Yeah. Oh yeah, helping you win, win the my wedding dog, game. <laughs> my dog's sitting right outside the bedroom door now. He wants back in. I won't let him. <laughs> he he blew it. He he was in here chilling hard, and he blew it. <laughs> you lost your chance, all bud. The, all over the trash, man. So you said you mentioned the wide bevel. So a lot of people are familiar familiar with like a flat grind and a convex grind and an S grind or something like that for chef's knives. But when it comes to a wide bevel, what do you mean by wide bevel knife? Uh, really quick. I mean I I mean we're basically. There's a, a defined shinogi line all the way up the knife, where and that's that the, really quick. That's that kind of like a ridge line that's going kind of exactly. down the blade, right? Think like okay. on a single bevel knife where it's like super pronounced. The sure. shinogi line, like a it's sushi. It's not knife. nearly as pronounced. Yeah, it's not nearly as pronounced on a on a double bevel. But if if like like certain makers, they'll 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 finish their knives on stones. Like uh, Joe Halcyon Forge, he'll do that a lot. Sure. And. Uh, and uh, oh my god, I just had a brain fart, dude. Say, tell me the question again, real quick. I'm sorry. Oh, you we were talking about wide bevel, and you were ex- oh, yeah, kind yeah. of explaining so, like what it is. And, yeah. And 
when you when you work a knife on the stones like that, and you can definitely you can get that you can definitely grind that in on a grinder. I've watched Joe do it, but then when sure. you kind of finish it on the stones too, like it, like I said, it just it like lays out a, a roadmap basically for whoever gets that knife to like to maintain exactly how it was basically made and, and sharpened and shaped, you know. And, and and it's harder to do that with knives that are like that are like there's like because like uh, like my Wantanabe that I have that's that's another guy from uh, Sanjo as well really awesome maker Wantanabe I think is how you say it correctly I'm not sure I always mess up pronunciations of the dude's names but uh, he'll make like he'll make like polished Kasumi knives and then he'll make like KU knives and the uh, the polished Kasumi ones are awesome dude they're red and they're really pretty but when you put them on the stones and you try to thin behind the edge there's no like real shinogi because it's basically been sanded away after they ground it to polish it and it can be very uneven or the grinds are like they hide the more uneven grinds a little more i feel like whereas to when you have like a karochi finished knife or a knife that's just not hand sand on the top it, you can definitely like see where it starts and you can feel the angle more and it hasn't mm, been like sure. rode over with sandpaper and stuff and it just it makes it easier to kind of maintain that that same look of the knife throughout the period of the knife if that makes sense yeah 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 and it, so, def- I mean, it definitely takes a lot of practice too to like just kind of maintain and kind of keep it straight and all that other stuff. But I would encourage people to, to do it as much as possible and, and really try to thin behind the edge as much as possible because it's real good experience and you'll actually have more fun using the knife. Because yeah. like I mean, a lot of knives that come, you know, can could honestly be thinner. You know, like sure. there's, there's definitely makers that you, I could get one and but like, this could be a little thinner behind the edge, and then you make it a little thinner, and all of a sudden that knife is just one of the baddest ones in your arsenal. You know. And sure. it's, and that's the one thing about sharpening that is really fun for me too. It's like, you can definitely make whatever knife you get kind of your own knife in a way. Right. Once, once, once you kind of, yeah, it's like making modifications. Why, yeah, exactly. It's, just, you know, it's like, it's like, suit, yeah. you know, buying a nice car, then putting an exhaust system on it and a couple of headers sure. in, the, in the engine and making it, you know, go a little faster. You can, you can definitely edit, edit out that one if you want. It's okay. <laughs> no, we're definitely keeping that one in. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you mentioned I, I'm glad you mentioned Kasumi because we actually had somebody ask what is a Kasumi finish uh, and you keep saying KU I'm not sure what you mean by KU oh like Karochi um, like okay. uh, I'm sorry yeah I should, probably should explain that better yeah like a Karo- like Karochi finish just like a forge scaled <laughs> finish basically that might have a like like some, I know some makers like a brute like, de forge yeah, yeah. And some makers will like soak it in like I can't remember what the name of the acid is, but there's like a mild acid that you can kind of soak it in and it kind of gives like a it kind of eats some of the scale off but like leaves that forge finish. I can't remember sure. what Joe does it a lot. I can't remember what it is. So I mean, but, I've uh, heard of people using like vinegar. Yeah, stuff, it's like, like vinegar and like some, But uh yeah, that's all I mean by that. And Kasumi okay. finish like there I don't know if there's like a literal translation for that. But like it kind of like if you look it up on the internet, it'll say like foggy or misty, okay. and and like really like a broad sense of the word is like just a, a a nice contrast between the iron and the core steel. But okay. uh, but like you can get a nice contrast and and kind of a mirrored look on the core steel from a lot of synthetic stones. But like for me, like a real Kasumi finish would be the. Like the stunt, the finish you can get from natural stones is just so much different than what you get from a synthetic stone on sure. so many levels. It's so weird how, and, and it's so weird how these, all these stones kind of do something just a little bit different than the other one. And it's all basically 
it all depends on the hardness of the stone, really. Like the softer the stone is, kind of the more like cloudier it can be and a little more like foggier it can be. And the harder it gets, like the more, the harder steel can look more mirrored in a way. And mm, it could be like true. less forgiving on the uh, the softer metals, like the, the softer iron claddings. Like some of the harder stones are way harder to polish the iron. But the, yeah. so you kind of can like mix and match like what what you'll you use like two different stones to kind of polish the same bevel. Sometimes you'll kind of focus your polishing on the harder stone for the core, then move it to the softer stone for the iron and try to blend it a little bit. Right. It's kind of, it's, it's totally weird what you can do with these stones and they're so much fun to use and they're way too expensive. <laughs> well, and so what is it? I've heard of like Uchi stone, like Uchi Gamora or Gamori. Yeah. Stone that's used to help with bringing out that polish, that really high, fine polish, which is like a quote unquote, a finger stone. Um, because usually you just use like, a little chunk of it or some powder, like a ground up powder of yeah. it to do the polishing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a big Uchi. I don't know where exactly it's from. I got it from my buddy Otto. I don't know if you okay. follow Otto, his, uh, uh-uh. Toichi Graham. Oh dude, you okay. should follow him for sure. He, I, I, I've most 90% of my stones I've ever got. have been from Otto. He lives in New okay. Zealand He's like he he gets he gets a bunch of natural stones like directly from Japan. He's got a really good source there, and he sells them at a, at a good price. And like he's the only one that I I can't really afford them from most of the stores. They're just too expensive. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's he's rad. He knows so much about it, and that's that's really like if somebody's really trying to get involved in, in natural stones, he's like the best person to talk to because he can explain it better than anyone, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He really can. But because uh, I, I, I don't even feel like I can do a good job explaining, especially when it comes to like uh, the uh, like where they come from and stuff like that. You know, like I, I don't I know the names of some of the mountains, but like, I you know, I don't know a, a lot about them, which ones are still open. I One of my favorite uh, stones I've ever gotten came from there. And uh, OK, he has like magical stones. They're amazing. I'll, I'll send sure. you a link to him, too, when we get off of here, because like he has this table in his in his like uh, den where he has like all these stones on the walls and stuff. And there's like this table in the middle that has like maybe 60 of them. And they're, like they'll never be sold. They're like his like throne of stones. And I don't even want to know how much throne it's worth. And it's like the most amazing table I've ever seen in my life, pretty much. Nice. There's there's a nice um, store over in Japan too. I saw a picture of that has like a wall built like like plastered of like all natural stones like into the into the wall on the side of the wall. I was like, oh my god, just plastered into. But the it's wall. weird how like other places around <laughs> the world these stones like I I, I keep thinking, man, I, I just want to like pick up a rock out here in the woods and see what happens if I you know flatten it and and sand it down and and rub a knife on it and see what happens, but like. It seems like really the only stones that have these uh, polishing effects on on steel and iron come from Japan. It's so bizarre. I've heard of some stones coming from Thailand and uh, China, but they don't have this, the the nice finishes, in my opinion, that I've seen anyway. Interesting. Sure. I let my dog back in. He was crying. Once it got quiet, he started making noise. He's like, "All right, I know you're in there." <laughs> He's like, "Hey, fucker, let me back in. <laughs> Why'd you lock me out?" Um, okay. So, I've seen, I think one of the first times I was actually first exposed to, you, I, you know, so I've been following Nick Anger for a long time, and I saw he had been teaching this class, and you were actually 
part of the class. Somebody, I think somebody actually sent me a message and thought that it was me <laughs> <laughs> in the picture because they, you know, they did the class photograph at the end. Yeah. Um, I was standing and, right in uh, front of them. I looked like a little troll. <laughs> is mini me <laughs> yeah he's such a he's such a monster yeah i don't even know how tall what is he like six eight six nine he's i think he's, i think he said he was six nine yeah six ten or something <gasps> he's oh, a monster yeah yeah, yeah that was bonkers. that was a really fun like that actually that was when i was working at the farm that i was talking about earlier and okay yeah yeah we had two months i we had two months basically out of the year that we didn't do anything and my wife was you know, doing really well with the private chef thing. And we had talked about it and we had planned two vacations and it's like, babe, I don't know if I really want to try to find like part-time work. And that, 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 that two month period, basically she was like, you just, you just stay home and, and, you know, help me and we'll go take a couple vacations and then you'll go back to work in March. And I was like, okay, awesome. And that's, that's where my life changed in like my own sharpening for real. Like that was it. Okay. I, I had, I had two months off. I went and took that class with Nick. Uh, you know, I putted around New York for a little bit and then we, we went out, that's the same year we, uh, went out to Colorado too. And I, uh, I met Craig at Carbon Knife Co. We went out there uh, the month prior and I just, you know, I, I really made some, you know, good friends and, and, and saw some things for the first time and kind of really like lit a fire under my ass a little bit. Like, okay, I want to get better at all of this and just kind of. And just kind of immerse myself in it as much as I can. And I and I love cooking. And I, I don't I don't really ever see myself for like never being in a restaurant in some capacity, mainly because I like it. I feel like I'm like Greg Sims in a lot of way. Like I, I definitely oh, sure. <laughs> I could I could like uh you know, I probably could like stop working and then like really focus on just trying to be like a sharpener and like pushing myself on people and all that. But I don't really want to go that route necessarily, at least not at this point. I just kind of yeah. like I, I want to like accept the work that I want to accept. Like there's like one sometimes people will send me messages and be like, you want to polish my honyaki? And I'm like, oh, my God, not really. You know, like I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't fucking I don't have like a lot of actually I'm getting a grinder. I'm getting a two by 72. Uh, oh, nice. Pretty soon. And I'll be able to do some some more like bigger jobs quicker and, and be able to charge like a better basically rate because I'll be more efficient at it once I get good at it. And that's, sure, sure. that's another thing. I'll probably have a bunch of questions for you and some other, some other makers. I'm like, yo, bro, how the fuck do you use this thing? Because I, <laughs> I'm, I'm super scared of it, to be honest. Like I, I'm, I'm, I've only fucked around on them a couple times and I'm not very good at it, you know? So sure. it's going to, it's going to take a long time to, in my opinion, to get good at it. But I, yeah. I, I can't I mean, wait. It, it takes practice like anything, but you, I think you'll figure it out, especially with your ability. I think the biggest key, I think, for anybody is is uh, kind of that muscle memory of kind of locking back in at that same angle yeah. when you approach the belt again with a knife. Because yeah. that's the thing that's always the most sketchy when you first start out is like the la- <laughs> is just accidentally gouging the knife at the completely wrong angle and fucking up the surface of the blade. Um yeah, I, I have confidence that you can figure it out. But yeah, it's gonna take a little practice at least to get started for sure. But that's yeah, cool. Yeah, I got that. my yeah, I got my buddy Mark who uh, he ma- he's a no- local knife maker here. Is alligator horse knives, I believe, on Instagram. He doesn't make okay. that many knives because his his full time job is he has like a custom. He makes like custom wine boxes for like vineyards and other you know people in general and basically like you know like a vineyard will buy like a bunch of boxes for their wine from him and he'll you know do a design and etch. he's sure. the one that did my uh did you see that knife magnet that i got the big one that's uh oh, that's the first uh, that's the first time he made a knife yeah. magnet that one i showed you 
it's a beautiful yeah. like 80 inch knife magnet made out of walnut that he made and like even etched in our little logo that we have for the knife brand but uh Nice. He's an awesome, really awesome woodworker, and he's going to build. He's helping me get a table together at the right height and stuff like that for the grinder. So it should be it should be set up pretty nicely here. I'm, I'm excited for it. Absolutely. I have enough space well, finally. <laughs> that's a perfect segue into a sponsor read for our one of our newer sponsors is Broadbeck Ironworks. Uh, they are knife makers who make grinders, so they're making for makers. Uh, they make two by seventy two inch grinder. Uh, it's super versatile, intuitive. They have uh, they have a really long, extra long platen, which also translates into a long slack area to work behind, work with, especially when it comes to the handle contouring, which is super nice. Yeah, it pivots from horizontal to vertical and back and forth depending on how you want to do or how, you know if you're grinding a knife versus grinding the profile of the knife uh, it just makes that workflow a little bit easier and making making that tool just that much more versatile uh, you don't need any wrenches or anything you know there are a lot of a lot of grinders require you know you need like a 9 16th wrench and yeah. you got to make sure you have multiples of those because you misplace that one fucking wrench and you're just chasing it around the shop for like an hour sometimes uh, so that's nice that they have all those kind of quick ratcheting kind of uh, handles for tightening everything down and loosening, opening things back up. Uh, it, it ships in a box. So what they do is they actually, they ship it out and so what's awesome about their pricing is uh, you, there's surprisingly uh, a f- uh, reasonable prices because they, they, uh, they, some of the labor is actually on you. So when you get it, you do the assembly and it helps save that, that uh, a little bit of cash that they would normally have to upcharge for because they would be paying somebody at their workshop to, to be doing that assembly. But because you're doing some of that assembly, that helps cut some of the price. And also, uh, if you use Knife Talk 5, um, and when you go to get one of their grinders, that will save you 5%. Uh, and shipping is included. It's all inclusive. Uh, so... Yeah, that um, makes sense. I mean, it's probably way easier to ship the damn thing too, instead of assembling it and trying to find. Oh yeah, instead of fully assemble. It's probably sure, way sure. more expensive Absolutely. to send it that way, you know. Yeah, so go check them out, BroadbeckIronworks.com, uh, Knife Talk Five to save five percent on your next Broadback grinder. Um, so that's awesome. So you know, I know we have talked. Uh, off and on about knife making back and forth for a while. And it sounds like you have your own project. You mentioned before uh, you have a Smith in Russia who's making Bulat. Um, and then uh, it sounds like you're getting the blades and you're, or you're helping with kind of like establishing geometry or tell me, yeah. tell me about this, this, well, uh, this yeah. line of knives that you got going. Yeah. Me and my buddy, me and my buddy uh, in Europe, Dirk, and uh my other friend mateo who's has been like basically basically me and my buddy mateo who's a big big knife guy over in he's yeah. he's italian but he lives in uh, uh sweden i believe okay and uh he's switalian yeah he's switalian he uh <laughs> he's he's so awesome he's got a little mustache that looks like mario and uh i, I love him <laughs> so much and he's just a, he's just a badass chef and he's got a ton, i mean he's got a ton of knives and uh nice. So we've been working on this for almost two years, really. And it kind of happened because my buddy Dirk, and uh, he uh, has some connections in Russia, and he, he was introduced to this blacksmith. He makes all kinds of cool stuff, and they became friends. And they, we started – he said he made this Bulat steel, and we wanted to see it. So we, we had him make a couple knives and send them over, and they were like 
kind of like really uh, just odd shapes and very big and very heavy. And I was like, wow, sure. these are like these are like miniature machetes almost, and not really like like a chef knife would be. But I'm still gonna like right. test the steel and stuff. And the steel was like super tough, and it got super sharp. And I'm like, what the hell is this stuff? And I tried to hand right. sand it once, and I I literally was like, this is the worst thing I've ever tried to do in my <laughs> life. I I don't want to do this ever again. Like you know, it's because it's so hard. And uh, yeah. and so over the last two years, you know, we've been working on profiles and 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 drawing stuff out and and sending him pictures and and explanations on things. And he's so talented; he just gets better and better over the last two years. And we, you know, I've been nice. testing knives over the last two years, and we're really at the point to where I'm happy with them. I think they're I think they're all very consistent. The, the taper on them's nice. The grinds on them are nice. We have. We have the Balat steel that we can do. We've been doing some really fun, like wrought iron Damascus, like San Mai with Balat and the core that looks really, really cool. And oh, wow. uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture of that. I think I posted one kind of like in the last couple of weeks. So I just sold one to my buddy Darren over in uh, New York, and he loves it. Uh, nice. But they're all like they're all based the, the profiles are all based off like my favorite Japanese makers, really. And Sure. I'm kind of I'll basically for the most part, I'll install the handles. If somebody wants something a little more custom, we have a, a buddy up in Massachusetts, uh, Gray, Graydon. He uh, he's been, he, he makes like a lot of my handles for me and sends them to me like with dowels in them and stuff. Basically, so all I have to do mm, is sure. a little file work and a little glue work and just kind of burn it in, basically. And yeah. uh, he's kind of like our other partner in crime in the whole process. So basically, I'll get a bunch of blades with no, no handles and, and they're not sharp and they're just ground and, and like the you know the everything's polished the edges are are, are are the troils all polished and stuff like that so basically all i have to do is like put an edge on them put put handles on them and then they're ready to go and then we just sell them and it's and yeah, it's, a, it's what's been a, the name kamadi what's the name again kamadi how do you spell that k-e-m-a-d-i okay and that's on instagram right oh yeah kamadi knives you can get it. It's cool. it's it's on my my profile. Like so, you can just click on it from there, and it'll take you. Okay. Are you guys selling through retailers yet, or is it all no no kind of direct to? Yeah, just direct through me. Like we're 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 to the okay. point now where it's like we're almost we're almost ready to like really sell more volume. I would say like like I'm waiting on. We have like a bunch of handles being made right now, and I'm just kind of waiting on a little bit of a stock up on things so I can have like options for people to pick like different handles and sure. stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fun it, and all my all these knives that we're trying to do are just like kind of like I said, they're all like wide bevel knives. So there's like they're they're all kind of set up for professional cooks to succeed for the most part. There's some that are hand sanded sure. and they'll be a little a little bit harder, like we talked about earlier with thinning and whatnot. Yeah. You might have to refinish them, but they're all like and we're trying to keep them all relatively price range to where like real cooks could afford them. Like and absolutely, you know. And and we got a, a good stainless steel we're using too, and I've I've been really happy with that. So we have we have something for everybody and a lot of different profiles, and soon we'll be ready to like really start pushing them out. I feel like awesome. And, yeah, I love it. Uh, and for makers who are listening right now, um, this is not actually a very unusual thing. In fact, in fact, a, a lot of uh, retailers or importers in the United States, especially if they're kind of a more boutique spot, they'll actually go to Japan. Like, uh, like Kevin was mentioning that Craig from uh, Carbon yeah. Knife Co. goes to Japan, and they work directly with the with the the Smiths and the companies. Um, oh yeah. 
and say, this is the very specific, you know, I want this kind of cladding. I want this kind of profile and stuff like that. And they work with them to do that. And I think that's really cool that you're doing that uh, based out of Europe. And especially with somebody who's making their own Bulat, which is really interesting. And Bulat, again, uh, another quick side note, uh, Bulat is basically Russian uh, crucible steel. So crucible steel, also known as Wootz was being made all over the world, you know, whatever, a thousand years ago. And Russia was one of the major places. And, you know, they just had, you know, they had the right resources. And so they became a, a hub and a, and a lot of crucible steel was being made up there and they called it Bulat. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what, like crucible steel, wood steel, uh, if it's forged down properly and everything's done right, it's, it is an insane edge, honestly. And it's, you know, all those like, carbides and everything that's going on this it's just it cuts it i call it a thirsty edge like yeah the way it cuts it's it's like you don't have to do any work it's, it's just aggressive. like ah, it just it's, tears right through it's super aggressive yeah yeah it, uh super and, aggressive yeah it's and it's and, and everything about it is hard to work with you know it's it's not an easy thing to do number one it's definitely sure. not an easy thing to work with and even like yeah. small thinning jobs and stuff, it's definitely going to be a. Uh, it's definitely in a way a more high maintenance steel if you're going to be using that sure. knife a lot. But it is right. super tough. That's the idea too. You know, it's like you don't have to sharpen it as much because it's. I, I, when, when we finally got some profiles that were like things that I was like, okay, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna take this one to work. I'm ready to see how this works. You know, like sure. it started really looking nice. I, I and I was like, man, this, this, I was putting it up against my, some of my favorite knives. And I was like, damn, this really is lasting like an extra three, four or five days, you know, like, and wow. I, I cut a shit ton at work and I, I don't yeah. fuck around with like just cutting a little bit here and there. Like, I'm like, I'm trying to cut everything. So no one else has to, it's like a race for me. It's like, all right, how much stuff can I get done today while I'm at work? Sure. And, and no one else really cares. Like, great. Let them cut everything. It's awesome. We'll, just, we'll get that. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And, and, and all in that, in that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a fun steel to work with. It's just it, it's hard to work with too. Uh, yeah, but it does. Well, and it's because of those extra carbides. It's it's w super wear resistant. Just like uh, other steels that other, uh, especially a lot of American makers might be more familiar with, is like W two or Crew Forge V. Uh, there's a yeah. high carbon con or high uh, vanadium content in those that makes them in intensely wear resistant and uh, a, a big pain to. <laughs> Even just even using a grinder to grind the material away, it's uh -huh. it's a huge pain. And oh, it's and hilarious. So, so we ha we have our Smith in Russia drill holes in the, the the cleavers that he's made for us now because the first cleaver that I had sent to my buddy Gray up in Massachusetts to put the handle on, uh -huh. he burnt out all his drill bricks trying to drill through this thing. It was oh, hilarious. Yeah. He's like, dude, none of sure. my drill bits work for this, and I was like, oh fuck, here we go. So I we had that we had our buddy in Russia <laughs> sent send drill bits that he uses over there because he can get them at a good price but it was it's oh, hilarious well, sure. it's it's that's so a, funny how how so much funny. how much harder that stuff really can be yeah all right well i think we covered a lot of great stuff is there you know we went deep about the, everything that you're doing right now yeah and not doing yeah. <laughs> because of the because of the sheltering in place and whatnot um yeah, so we, you know, I put questions out there for a lot of people, uh, or about you, and that I was gonna have you on the show, and we got a lot of good questions. Uh, really quick, you were talking about hand sanding before, and if you're looking for uh, some 
material, the right kind of stuff to hand sand with, and the right kind of sandpaper to sandpaper, or sandpaper with, oh my god, this is the worst, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, anyways, <laughs> rhino wet, uh, especially the red line. Rhino wets, what's up? Is it, do you actually use rhino wet? I've, I've been using rhino wet since I met Joe Scrum uh maybe three years ago yeah i i yeah i've and i and i don't use it nearly as much as i don't go through nearly as much so i just stocked up on a bunch of it like literally two sure. years ago and i still yeah. have a bunch of it and it's by nice. it's by far the best it's by far the best that yeah I no doubt about absolutely. it absolutely so it's, awesome. it's made by yeah in dasa usa um and we have a deal with texas farrier supply where if you pump in Knife Talk 10, you'll save yourself 10% uh, at checkout. And not only do they offer the sandpaper, they have all kinds of supplies that you need for blacksmithing, farrier work, and knife making from handle materials and others, other supplies as well. So um, go check out Texas Farrier Supply. Uh, punch in Knife Talk 10 to save yourself 10% uh, on your Indasa USA Rhino Wet Redline Sandpaper. All right, so moving on, are you ready to get in some questions? Yeah, dude, yeah. All right, this is the I'm part so of the show. About these. Yeah, this is like, hey man, can hey man, can I ask you a question? <laughs> <laughs> so I put a I put a a question uh story out to everybody on both my Instagram and Knife Talk Instagram and uh we got a lot of questions. We got about 40 questions in here. So we're just going to start piling through these. We might have already addressed some of these uh, in our previous portion of our conversation. Um, but it doesn't matter. We're just going to go through them. So this first one is from Fire Fiery Ice Forge. He's asking, what's your favorite stone grit progression? Um. Well, that for okay, that's an easy one, really. Just uh, sure. for thinning or sharpening, it would be I'll start at something coarse like two hundred, do do the brunt work there, and then move up through. I'll probably go to like a five hundred, and sure. then a thousand, and then I'll jump to a, a softer natural stone, and then a harder natural stone for polishing. And then okay. for for edge sharpening, I literally only sharpen the edge if the knife is super thin, like super duper motherfucking just super fucking thin I, i'll sharpen it on on like i'll start it on like a four thousand grit and move to a finishing stone but if it's like a, not like the, the craziest thinnest knife i'll just usually do a thousand grit stone and i have i i literally been using the same two thousand grit stones now for like four years and it's like the sure. the king the king hyper 1000 and yeah. the naniwa chosera 1000 okay and i've been using those same two for i mean forever dude and they're good they're good the king's a soaker you can just keep it in water the whole time and the nani was a splash and go and they're both really good thousand grit stones splash and go i like that um so real quick when you are doing these blades and you're thinning them and you're grinding against those faces you must be grinding away the uh the look of like the cladding are you just using the finger stones to bring back kind of that contrast or are you using, uh, no, the assistant I don't, of another? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I try not to fuck with finger stones too much. Okay. I'll, uh, you'll get the, you'll get like, uh, the effects of the, the, the cladding back once you start getting pretty much into the natural stones in general. Like okay. as soon as you, like you should have like, most synthetic stones will you'll still see a, a contrast difference in the in the cladding and the coarse steel, but it won't have that same finish. And then once you kind of graduate, like and some people will go up to like six thousand grit on synthetic stones and then move over to naturals. 
I, and, and if you're trying to like get, get like the most perfect polish ever, like that's something I used to chase for. And now it's kind of just funny to me. It's like, I don't really care if there's a couple scratches here and sure. there. I'm, it looks good. It looks good from two feet away. And that's as close as anyone's going to get to my knife anyway, when I'm at work. And yeah. it's only going to look that way for exactly 30 seconds after I get there. Cause I'm going <laughs> to use it. So right. it's like, as long as the, the geometry is where I want it and it's, you know, I, I run through the grits, but I don't like sit there and like polish the shit out of my knives to make them look so pretty. Cause it's like, I don't have time for that shit anyway. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's it. That's it really. I mean, and then like, like I said, I only sharpen the edge on a thousand grit and then a finishing stone and that's it. And I don't use any compounds. I don't, I, I just use a linen strop. I use a sponge for deburring. And okay. I use a leather a leather oh, a strop sponge. sometimes as well. A sponge, yeah, dude. Get your dish sponge. Your like the soft the side one, or the no, or like the, the coarse the, side. The, the coarse side. It, it's okay. that's something. For John, John from Japanese Knife Imports. I went there sure. uh, like a year and a half ago, and I, right. I I was in LA for four days. I was hanging out with my buddy Greg. Uh, Greg is Greg. Greg's the man. Greg. Greg actually his he makes knife bags and like chef apparel. Called, uh, his his Instagram page called like Dark Heart. He makes the best knife bags, in my opinion, out of anything that I've seen or used. Oh man, they're really they're they're so functional. I've had the same one now for almost three years, and I beat the shit out of it, and it's still it's still awesome. Pete, when nice. I still when I open it up, people still go, "Damn, that thing's fucking dope." I'm like, "Yeah, it's badass. I love it. You should buy one." <laughs> I, I tell everyone that I see yeah, that works in restaurants. I'm like, "Yeah, you should definitely get one." And then most of the time, I'm like, "Damn, it's how much?" And it's like it's not like 150 bucks. It's not that bad. You're, you're putting all your expensive knives in it. It should be kind of expensive, in my opinion. Should right. And it does a really it does a really good job. Like most knife bags, like they 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 go from the the handle, you know, you slide the handle in. These sure. are kind of the opposite. Your big knives, you put the blade into the pocket, so they're like really secure. And I really like that design way better. Well, it than helps protect how most the, of them. The blade faces yeah. on the edge better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like no movement. There's no there's a way less movement. If, you know, if the whole blade is encased in like a sleeve instead of like just the handle and a sleeve, and then like the the actual blade just kind of flopping around in the knife bag. He also makes ones that are like super dope that have like magnets built into them. Yeah, so literally, you just ones. slide. Oh man, that's my favorite one. That's my dream bag right there. Right. But so I went out there. I went out there to to work with John basically, and and because and, and most people hold him as like the best sharpener in North America. I mean, anyone that I've talked to and really got my you know got my advice from they're like yeah dude you should definitely watch like the, people ask me why i don't make like youtube videos number one i'm an idiot when it comes <laughs> to doing anything sure. with technology okay I, I i why do you this is why i work with my hands my whole life because i don't i don't really have an interest in trying to get super technical with computers and stuff like that and sure. i suck at it yeah. and i don't need to because john's got all the sharpening videos already done on on the web on youtube ready to go and it's and his, everything that's Japanese that, knife imports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's awesome. He is. He's he the is bad, awesome. baddest of the baddest. Dude. And he's, he's and guy. he's super knowledgeable, and he's and he's super thorough and super just like he he can answer pretty much almost any question. You know, it's so, crazy. So I guess he he would his content would probably be another great resource for knife makers getting into chefs. Absolutely, knives, especially Japanese inspired chefs knives. Yes, hundred percent. I've also noticed on his website, he's got a ton of measurements that I think are a great resource too for knife makers. I just remembered uh, where he measures along the spine and thickness at various places and how tall they are and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. 
hundred percent. And that's that's the one thing that I that I'll say is like going going back to like profiles that I like and stuff too. It's like that's where that extra like distal taper in the spine comes in. Like you can have a nice thin chef knife that doesn't really. Uh, you know, start out too thick. Maybe it starts out at like 2.5 millimeters and it kind of just stays that way until the tip almost sure. like those. You And if it's thin behind the edge, those usually end up being a little floppy, you know, like a little, they're not as stiff. And that's where that extra little distal taper comes in. And like an everyday banger that you kind of, it kind of goes the extra mile and you, it feels stiff. It feels like a good knife, but it's not too heavy. And it, and that's why I like that distal taper a little more. I'd be curious for, I don't know. Do you have calipers at, at your house? Oh Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious on whatever your favorite wide bevel is to not get measurements necessarily at the spine, but kind of in the middle of the blade and see how that is different from what's happening at the spine as well as the edge. Because my thought is that it's probably actually thickest in the middle of the blade instead of at the spine of the blade, which helps lend some of that rigidity throughout the length of the, especially like a 240, which is basically... For Americans, it's like uh, what is that? Eight and three quarter? No, it's like nine and nine and something. Eight, oh, nine, eight and three yeah, quarters it's like nine and a quarter. Sorry, yeah. sorry. It's like nine. It's nine. Uh, yeah, nine and a quarter or nine and a half almost. I love it when I love it when Jeff starts railing off like uh, all the <laughs> fractions on on. on I'm like, I just I get so lost. I'm like, what the fuck is this dude talking about? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because like like more than half of the American makers will talk to you in fractions, and I, I I've given up on that whole system for when it sure. comes to knives. Like seven years ago, like I don't even sure. think in inches at all anymore because it doesn't make any sense for me to like measure something so thin in like inches. It's like oh my god, because like one of my rule of thumbs too is like especially for a good cutter, I would say, and and this has gone through like lots of like you know bullshitting with me and my buddies. Like we have like a little knife group too on on a Telegram. Yeah. Uh, you were in it for uh, for a hot minute, and then it's, I got it's, kicked out. <laughs> you didn't get kicked out. <laughs> I'm just teasing. It, it got it got dismantled. All oh, right, all right. Sorry, it, yeah. It, it, need, it needed to, it needed to happen. It was getting too big. Yeah. But uh, so like, and it really the general consensus is is try to have the uh, measure the knife like a centimeter up from the edge with some calipers, okay. and if you can find that sweet spot where it, in in the, a centimeter up from from the edge. And try to have that consistent all the way down from heel to tip. You'll mm. find yourself with a really consistent cutter, and, and and that measurement should be right around like one millimeter or less. I would say, okay. right at right at the centimeter up, and you'll okay. find that like that that usually if it's that thin at a centimeter up, it's going to be really nice. And if it's thinner than that, it's a super thin knife, and you should be careful with it. Number one, but it's probably a really badass cutter. <laughs> yeah, nice, perfect. I love it. All right. Uh, so Josh height is asking, what is your favorite steel to sharpen? Oh man. I, I, that's kind of like, uh, hard to say it's any, any kind of like good carbon steel. is like fun to sharpen for me. I don't, I don't know if I have a, I don't know if I have like one in particular, to be honest, because white's white's a little easier. I would say blue, blue is just right behind it. And then like, anything else like i've I've been what what i've been using the most over the last six months seven months is uh 135 cr3 which is some kind of uh uh it's some kind of uh england or i'm I'm sorry european steel i'm pretty sure sure and it's it's uh, it's on my yannick knife that uh who uh if if people don't follow uh yannick puig they definitely should he is 
He is one of my favorite makers. Uh, Y-A-N-I-C-K. Okay. P-U-I-G, I think. Puig. Okay. Uh, he, he makes, he makes like for me, like him and Joe make like my, my, like my ideal knives. Like I said, like the wide bevel with like a rough finish and mm. you know, just, sim- I, I prefer like simple, like one piece wood handles. Sure. I don't like to get into like fancy handles that like, like materials that could be a little more brittle and stuff like that. Like I try to steer away from that kind of stuff. Cause I am sure. taking my knives to work. They're not just sitting around in my kitchen for the most part, the ones yeah. I use every day anyway. But he, 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 I'm telling you what, man, he, he is, he makes this steel is so tough and it, it lasts so long and it's easy to sharpen. And every knife I've gotten from him has been like, just really awesome. And I've got like four or five of them now. Nice. Uh, he makes them out. Oh man. If you, and he, and he does things like me, that's, that's how I found him. Like, I was like, dude, this guy's like, he's doing like stone polishes and finishing these knives and like Kasumi finishes and stuff. And like, you don't really see that too often. I'm like, Holy shit, who is this guy? And he's in France. He's in Southern France. Um, not far from Toulouse, I think. Okay. Um, like out in the country there, I'll send you a link when we get off. There was a, sure. there was a French uh, TV show, like a food show that went to his forge and like interviewed him. And there's like subtitles and stuff. And it's really interesting actually. Oh, nice. But he does, he does amazing work. He was, he's been a blacksmith, I think since he was like, uh, 15 years old he's 40 or 41 now i think and he's been making okay. chef knives for like seven years so he like he definitely knows his way around oh, wow. like metal and all sure. that stuff he he actually just built a mini power hammer that's super impressive <laughs> he like nice. he built a mini power hammer from scratch basically so he could like awesome. do it for like yeah i mean it's it's unbelievable yeah. how how handy he is yeah and he's like one of the nicest guys too dig it but uh, so it. that and that's a steel that like i've i've only really seen him use it I say it would compare to like Aragami Super, like okay. it's like a little bit more wear resistant than like Blue One and Blue Two, but uh, it, it's I mean it's bad it's badass, it's a good steel. So you mentioned, but white. any carbon steel. Oh, sorry. Yeah, any but carbon, any carbon steel. steel really is is fun to sharpen for me. I like doing any of that. Nice. Um, you mentioned white and blue and blue two. Are are these Hitachi steels? I can't remember if they're Aragami yeah. or Hitachi. Yeah. Yeah, like shiragami would be white, and then aragami would be blue, and then yeah, they're just like the 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 typical Japanese Hitachi steel for the most part, which is basically kind of a traditional, a quote unquote traditional formulation. But instead of doing the whole Tatara melt, they're they're doing it using, I think, more traditional industrial or like a more modern industrial manufacturing to make those same kind of steels. Do you know? Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know the whole process, to be honest. I, I hope someday I can go over there and see all that shit firsthand because that would be Hell totally yeah. rad. I agree. I would love to but see that too. No, no, uh, no plans for any traveling in the near future for any <laughs> of us. I don't think so. Uh, yeah. Hmm. All right. The next one is from our friend Pellegrino Cutlery. Same last oh. name. I wonder if you guys are uh, related. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania. He is. We're asking, both fucking handsome. I know that much. Yes, you are. Uh, <laughs> what is the real benefit of using natural stones is it like digital versus vinyl sort of a thing sort of thing or not uh, i think you've kind of touched on this again but do you want to reiterate what like well, kind of the, the differences the, the one the, the one huge difference definitely is the actual finish you get from the stone okay. and the uh the feedback like in everything about them is different even the way they smell is different like 
when you pull it out and you get it wet and you and you flatten it down with a little bit of a an atoma plate or something and you actually yeah. like make a little slurry on the stone you yeah. smell like mud from japan you know what i'm saying like that fills that fills the area in front of your face and, and it immediately like gets you interested you're like oh that's interesting and like oh let's let's start using this like it's it's very they're very intriguing from the get go i would say and they're usually very unique looking each one has its own look and style kind of you know but uh some of them uh, I mean, actually, almost everyone I've ever used, they they uh, using them as a finishing stone, like after a 1000 grit for your edge, like the, some of the harder ones, I would say that uh, leave a finer finish, but they're like really, really fine scratches. If you can find a stone like that, I feel like those leave like the really, really like nasty edges on some of the knives more so than like some nasty of the soft is good or nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, like nasty, <laughs> like is in like, like super refined, but also like, super ooh, like, nasty. Soupy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I try to I try to judge that like I try to judge the the actual bite of the knife by cutting paper sure. towels. Everyone sure. everyone that follows me knows that they think I'm crazy and and a lot of people like won't put much stock in it. But I I, I literally do it because I try to find that I that's that happy slice where it, it goes through it and there's no breaks in the slice and it sounds sure. the same all the way through you know and yeah. there's no snag ups and that's when I go okay I think that edge is like as good as it's gonna get you know right and you yeah. go from there. And and it's an easy way to test it without like like doing any damage to it too. For sure, yeah. Paper towel cut is surprisingly challenging, um, because of how fibrous it is and how kind of I don't know, for lack of a better term, like limp it is. <laughs> yeah, like this. yeah. Like like if I cut like phone book paper, like I'll I'll make that. I mean, it just might like that used to be my test when I was first sharpening. I would like cut that and like I would be like, oh, I cut that really well. And like yeah. years later, I go back to cutting phone book paper. And I can like almost carve you an animal out of the paper. I can like squiggly line all the way down it, no problem, and like sure. go really fast sure. if I want everything else. But you can't do that with paper towel. You kind of have to go at it slow, and and really let the edge do the work for you. You can't cut the paper towel yourself yeah, just course. by moving it. Like the edge mm. definitely has to do the work for you. Mm, interesting. I like it. All right, Maximilian six six is asking about the myth about stones and sharpening in general. I don't even know. I'm not sure what that means exactly. Is there, are there um, myths around stones and sharpening? No, no. it's, uh, it's honestly like, it's honestly one of the most simple things you can do in life. In my opinion, it's like one of the oldest sure. traditions of like maintaining a tool probably. Sure. And, uh, and it's, there's, there's no like, like really crazy tricks to any of it. It just literally takes like, hours and hours and hours of doing it over and over again just like right. anything else you probably want to get good at really and yeah that's it it just takes a ton of time that's it yeah no i, I really admire the amount of time that you've taken to really figure this out and i think it's something it's kind of a, a kind of a i don't know if i want to call it an art or a craft or whatever but it's just a, a sense of it's it's more like a ritual i guess if you think about it yeah um you it's know, part you of my mies yeah, it's it's this, you know, the knife is a tool that you have to to do a very specific job. And I think, you know, a hundred even a hundred years ago, like whatever you bought, whatever you spent money on, it was a very thoughtful purchase. You didn't just grab something off the shelf and say, oh, this will work. You know, you had, yeah. to, you know, money wasn't it, it's just you had to be careful about what you're investing in and, then, and, and spending your money on. And then once and you, you, had, got you had to thing, take care of everything. 
Exactly. You had to take, you had to know how it worked. You had to take care. Actually, things were engineered so that they could be maintained by yeah. the purchaser. Um, I kind of wish I lived back then because of that. I feel like I would have <laughs> been, uh, I would have been, I don't know. I would have been better back then. I feel like I would have fit sure. in better. Yeah. Well, and what is it? I can't remember what the term is exactly, but essentially things are kind of manufactured or engineered to actually fail so that you have to reinvest or re-up nowadays. And so I think that's what's, uh, unfortunately, people have lost that sense of, I guess, relationship or ritual around the things that they own. I think the closest thing they might come come to is, you know, if they own uh, like a cast iron pan, like you don't just throw that in the sink or, you know, there's kind oh, of a no. ritual around taking care of that thing. So it works well for you when you come back to it later. Um, you know, it's, it's like people who are really into their cars or even like bicyclists who do really good job, taking care of their bike and keeping everything clean, like whatever it is, there's, I'm I'm sure everybody's got something that they're really into that they really focus in on, but it used to be like everything that you owned, you took really, really good care of. Um, and it's not really that that's not really the case i feel like now no it's definitely more of, of a throwaway culture i mean i mean yeah it's hilarious like people that i know i've known like my whole life will send me random messages and be like yo i'm about to go to walmart you got a, a suggestion on a knife I, I should buy and i was like yeah don't buy a knife at fucking walmart <laughs> and uh, it's like no i don't i don't know i don't even know what they sell at walmart to be honest but i mean they, yeah. and, and they're only going to buy knives because the last one was dull and they they thought it was trash you know right it's like that's, that's just the nature of the thing like eventually when you use it it gets dull and it has to be tuned back up again mm-hmm. yeah all right this next one is from leo i'm probably gonna butcher this yan 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 chuck yan chuck sorry about that leo all right <laughs> he says what angle <laughs> is your sharpening bevel so what angle are you sharpening at um i don't know honestly it's probably it's probably in between 11 and 14 degrees if i had to guess but i really have no idea and now i'm talking about when i'm sharpening the edge yeah yeah the angles as far as like the you know the secondary bevel whatever you want to call it the big bevel is just how it comes it's probably i have no idea what that would be you just lay it flat on the stones pretty much and try to add a little convexity to it when you're thinning but i it's probably in between 11 and 14 if i had to guess I don't know though. I have no okay. idea. So look shooting for kind of a, a 20 degree bevel inclusive. So the overall primary cutting edge is about approximately 20 degrees ish. Probably, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you, cause like I, I, cause to be honest, I feel like when I sharpen my, my, so if, say if I have the knife in my right hand and I'm sharpening the right side of the edge, the, sure so the the tips facing forward and i'm sharpening i feel like when i'm doing it that way then when i flip the knife over to sharpen the left side mm-hmm. that first mm-hmm. angle i feel like is actually lower than the the angle when i flip it over i yeah. i honestly feel like i'm actually sharpening at two different angles and for some reason it works out good for me but i could never tell you because i feel like my thumb's in the way more when i flip the knife over okay but but uh it's it's a weird thing, but I definitely don't think that both sides of my knife are being sharpened at the same angle, and it's and I don't think it matters as much as it does about like how your bur- your burr removal technique is and yeah. 
and just how consistent you are in your stroke. I find you, the more consistent you get in your stroke with anything, when it comes to like hand sanding or fucking polishing knives on stones and yeah. sharpening, the more consistent your stroke gets, the better you get in general. Just like when you're like playing the drums or any musical instrument, pretty much, you have to be fluid in your motions to yeah. achieve uh, a good finish, pretty much. You got to be fluid and consistent in your stroke. It's important. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if Craig was in here, there would insert dick joke right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned convexity. So you were talking about the wide bevels before. Are those flat or are they gently convex? Tell me about that and how you achieve that well, with a stone. So there, I, I think that the way you pronounce this is uh, Hamagura or Hamaguri or Hamagura. Oh, fuck, I can't remember now, dude. God damn it. I'm, I'm so bad with these names. Right, but basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a style of sharp. It's a style of like Japanese sharpening where it's, it's uh, you, where you thin behind the edge and you, you basically add subtle convexity. So probably you're like, like the locking last, it? Yeah, you lift up a little bit. Okay. You, so like as I'm finishing the stroke, pushing away from me on the stone, yeah. I gently lift up and I, I have my fingers closer to the edge and, and you don't want to like apply too much pressure because you can definitely like, if your knife's already kind of thin, you can definitely like take off too much and be like, Oh sure. fuck, I overground that a bit. Yeah. But, uh, you just kind of lightly lift up as you're finishing your stroke and you'll, you'll develop this, uh, just a nice little, uh, convexity to it. And the way to identify that really is if you, if you put your, your knife, especially if you're, uh, got it polished up a little bit nicer and you mm -hmm. put it up in some certain light, you can see the reflection bending oh, when, yeah, sure. when, it, when it hits that certain convexity, you know, and you can actually see it and you try to look for that bend in, yeah. in that reflection, like all the way up your knife and you can kind of see that. And that's called a, and then basically what you do is you, you, you create like, you basically erase your micro bubble that you had previously and then create yeah. a new one after you thin like that. And that's okay. called a, I think it's called Hamagura sharpening. Sounds great. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, I have noticed that with uh, tube lights, that is, uh, whether it's LED, like a little LED like you have over your sharpening station or if it's like an overhead halogen or something like that, Those the, the length of that tube light, um, if you can adjust yourself essentially perpendicular to that over the top of you, yep. you can, it'll help you see where yeah, that Yeah, you'll see it. It's moves. like a little wave. It'll make like a little wave motion almost over the, the convex. But yeah, and that's totally how I judge like what's going on right. and, you know, and like where you need to like, and then, and then you have to change the way you polish once you do that too. Nice. And you, you're basically like polishing two different sections at the same time and trying to blend that together. And that's when it gets a little tricky. And that's when people start using more finger stones and stuff too. Nice. Okay. Uh, life of Garrett is asking, are natural stones worth it? I mean, I, I, if, you're, if you're spending time sharpening knives and enjoying it and finding that you're getting good results and you have wide bevel knives and you want to see what that's like, I, yeah, I do. I think, I think you can go out there and find something for like 200 bucks that is probably pretty decent sure. and I think you'll enjoy using but it's 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 not necessary if you're just if you're if you're just trying to get things sharp and get and get get back to work like you definitely don't need them. It's definitely right. I would definitely call it more of a luxury in in the sharpening world to have them and use them. And it's yeah. definitely somewhat of a commitment, but I mean 
it, it, if you're out there spending, you know, anywhere from three, two, two, three, four, five hundred, six hundred, seven, fucking people sell knives, you know, for all kinds <laughs> of different amounts. Yeah. It, like, and you once you get into a hobby like that, you find that the other tools you need to keep that hobby going are almost just as fucking expensive <laughs> right. for the good stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Even yeah, even c- cutting boards. I mean, I've seen really oh, yeah, beautiful butcher blocks and cutting boards. They're easily two, three, four hundred dollars for oh, a beautiful yeah, man. walnut and maple and grain like cutting board. Yeah, but it's worth. Is it, it worth it? It's well, fuck I, yeah, it's worth it. It's awesome. It's totally I, rad. Just well, buy it. <laughs> well, and I think it's worth it because again, it goes back to uh, you know the quality of the things. Yeah, it might be a little bit more expensive up front, but damn, that thing's gonna be with you for twenty, thirty, forty years. You know, unless something completely tragic happens to it, yeah. it's going to be around probably most likely until you die. I've been um, using the same cutting board for almost eight years now sure. that my, my my buddy's dad made for me. I, I love it. It's Beautiful. so awesome. Yeah. Love it. Um. Oh, yeah. So you so I mean, based on what we've been talking about, to me, it sounds like, you know, if you're really trying to achieve that kind of Kasumi finish on your knives, you, Japanese stones are kind of the way to go um but again like you just said if you're just trying to get it sharp it doesn't sound like it japanese stone is really necessary no not at all and yeah. and the, and john from japanese knife imports will, will argue that like he he thinks synthetic stones probably work better for sharpening right and for the actual and, sharpening yeah for, yeah for sure and yeah. and i honestly I'll, I'll i'll sometimes i'll sharpen something on synthetics just to see if i can tell the difference and i honestly don't know if i can sometimes there's a couple natural stones that i have that i really feel like do just do a little bit more as far as like really being toothy and like aggressively sharp but uh for the most part dude it's 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 all what what you can do with your hands and not so much what the stone can do for you okay. you know it's like it's technique over just like the materials that you have in front of you right for sure well, I'm thinking about you You talking about the, the kind of like that gentle rocking motion. I, now I understand better what you were saying before about sharpening with ro- your right hand and then having to switch to your left hand. And that, oh, yeah, it sounds like it, it sounds like especially when you're thinning, it's really important to do it because you can't really I, just thinking about like the edge facing me and the spine facing away and trying to thin that offside sounds really awkward versus the spine facing me. And the edge facing away and do, use, being able to kind of use both hands to gently rock mm-hmm. that knife to create that. And the only thing you got to just, yeah, switching to your left hand and do the same thing. Yeah. I, you, I understand. What you you're have saying. to really train your, you have to really train yourself to know where, when you put your finger on top of the knife, where you're going to remove metal underneath. And to do that blindly is like mm-hmm. super hard to get used to. So like, sure. and, and like, you'll see this if anyone goes and watches John's videos, like I said, I don't need to make them cause they're all already out there and I'm not going to make better ones than he has. Sure. He, 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 he's, you just use a permanent marker, color your whole bevel in and then set it on the stone and then put your fingers in one spot, do a little strokes and then see where the metal comes off. Right. And then and move and move up and down the knife and just pay attention to. So if I put my fingers here, I make scratch marks here on the other side. And usually what I find is that if your fingers, if your, your fingers are a little higher than where the metal is being removed on the underside on the stone, just by okay. a little bit. It's a weird thing. 
but there's no like exact science to it either. It's like you literally have to sit there and do it until you figure out where you need to put your fingers and how you need to apply the pressure. Well, and I think marking it, like you just mentioned, that is a really, really useful tip. I think for, especially, I mean, even for me to even think about how would I do this? I, I feel confident that I would be able to see the scratches pretty well, but to be able yep. to darken it with a pen like that, it, it just makes it that much more uh, kind of blatantly obvious as to where you're actually doing work. Um, yeah, exactly. It's a really good tip. I like that. That's John. That's John for you. He's got Jenny, all the tips. Jenny boy. All right. Uh, this next one is from David Rigsby. He says, how thick is your edge when you begin sharpening and what grit stone do you start with? Thousand grit. Usually okay. um, the, the edge, I don't, I don't ever measure it. I, I, I put it under a strong light and I'll put my fingernail under it and I'll bend it with my fingernail. Okay. And if it bends nice and nice and easy, pretty much. Like that's when I was like, okay, it's nice and thin. And then I'll put it, yeah, yeah, I'm going to, and, and I don't recommend that everyone, if you're a big bruiser with a knife, I don't recommend that you use a knife that thin necessarily, but I'm not a, I'm not a big bruiser. I'm a, I'm like more of a meticulous cutter and I, I do a lot of push cut technique. I'm not like roll cutting and constantly have my knife on a plastic cutting board all day. That's just kind of rolling all over it. I'm, I pick it up after each, each cut and lightly tap it back down for the most part. Sure. So I can, I can get away with being a little thinner than most people, I would say. But if you have proper technique with your knife and you, and you do some nice push cuts, you'll, you'll find that it, when you get that thin, like it, it's like effortless to cut any kind of dense food even. It's, it's so much more fun to use a knife like that. Absolutely. So uh, you touched on something that was pretty interesting, and I, I don't think we've really ever actually addressed on the show. It's kind of the, the, the difference between uh, kind of, I guess, more of a European approach to uh, knife skills, which is typically a roll or chop or a cut versus kind of, yep. I think a more Japanese, uh, or a kind of Eastern tradition of doing kind of like push cuts and draw cuts. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, I can. And I, and I think those techniques literally came from the tools they were using back then as well. You know, like if you think about the older, uh, you know, Wustoffs and saboteurs and stuff like that, those were just kind of bigger, beefier knives in general and could can kind of probably take a little more wear and tears where like uh, Japanese knives have been thin for quite some time and right. they kind of developed that I would say because like you can if, you, if your knife's super thin and you're using like not a not great cutting board well like a plastic one that gets tossed around the kitchen all the time there's probably some big grooves in it and whatnot sure. one of those little grooves can fuck up a Japanese knife pretty easily to be honest if you're sitting there like rolling it over and over sure. on the cutting board you know so uh yeah just it's it's uh and there's definitely you can definitely be a, a a roll cutter and be delicate too, and you can see people that do that and do it like with finesse, in my opinion. And and it's it, it I wouldn't say that it's any less of a technique or anything like that, as long as you're not damaging foods that you're using technique. a sharp knife. I feel like yeah, it's just a different technique. Okay. I I think it's more efficient, and I feel like I can cut thinner with a push cut technique when I'm oh, like sure. really trying to shave something really thin than, than a rolling technique. And I feel like, I feel, I just feel safer actually. And I, I literally just started push cutting. I would say probably like three and a half years ago. Okay. I, I didn't, I, I was, I was a roller almost my, my whole career, I would say. So once I switched, I really started to feel more comfortable to be honest. I was like, man, I really probably should have been doing this a long time ago. Sure. I've had I've had that epiphany a lot while working in restaurants. I was like, wow, I really didn't know what I was doing eight years ago. <laughs> I feel way better about it now. Yeah, I've always I feel like I've always just kind of naturally been a push cutter. I tried doing the rock chop 
rock chopping. And for me, it felt really kind of, and I think part of it was just my lack of experience when I first started prepping and stuff is feeling really out of control. And so I was like, God, I can't do this. And I felt like an idiot, but I was like, I need to lift the whole knife off the board and then cut down. It's just, it's yep. just, it seemed like I it felt to me like I had more control that way and, uh, versus like l- trying to like chop an onion, even half an onion at that height, trying to do like a, like a, like a, oh geez, I can't, like a julienne of onion with the tip in contact with the board and trying to rock it up, you know, potentially yep. two inches high. It feels really yeah, it out make of any control sense. for me. It feels really awkward. And so I always kind of did push cutting. And then I found out it was actually and, a thing and I was like, oh, okay. And learned more started learning more about the and then I, th- I think one thing that i'll say and 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 to why push cutting makes you more efficient as well and a lot of people don't realize this well sometimes you'll see someone pick up a knife and they'll go to use it and they'll, they'll it's kind of a push cut but they're like go straight down you know like mm. i'm going straight up and down and that's not that's not that's not what i would call a push cut right. and the reason is i would say that is like especially if you're slicing something that's not a vegetable especially like meat or something like that you got to think of the knife, use the knife more like you would use a slicer. Sure. Uh, use the blade. I mean, like, and if you're, if you're constantly moving the blade forward as you're going down at the same time, you're going to do way less work with your body. And the knife is going to do almost all of it for you. If it's properly sharpened, absolutely. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and once you figure out that motion where you're, you're moving forward, probably two or three inches and going down at the same time, like it feels like you're, you're cutting air most of the time. And it, and it just makes, yeah. it just makes using knives more fun. You know, it's a, it's a pretty incredible experience when you have that first feeling of sharpening with a, a nicely thinned knife that's properly sharpened. And it just, yeah, it's like, there's nothing there almost. Yeah. All and of you a like, sudden, your material and you pick up a turnip and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, yeah. Yeah. I was talking with my friend Dan Keffler the other day about – he's a competition cutter. He's cutting very different stuff. But a point he made about chopping into wood is that he designs his knife so he's slicing into the wood rather than cush, uh, crushing and chopping straight down. And the point he makes is that the, the fibers in the wood are very resistant to that kind of cutting. And I think on a obviously on a very different level, you know, the fibers of the vegetables that you're cutting when you're prepping food, you know, it's probably a very similar thing. And, you know, what's the point of sharpening the knife if you're not going to make use of those micro serrations along the cutting edge? You know, you would never try to go saw a piece of wood with a handsaw by just pushing straight down. You know, you're no. going to saw back and forth. You're going to use those teeth. So try to, so when it comes to knife skills and, and putting that tool to use, it seems like, yeah, using the, yeah, Using those teeth to your advantage, like you're saying, makes the most Absolutely. sense and the most effective. I'll say, I'll say to your point about wood, and if you cut a carrot with a sharp knife where it doesn't crack the carrot, it looks like fucking wood on the inside, dude. Like oh, the yeah, way that sure. the way those root vegetables are like built inside, it like literally looks like wood on the inside of some of those vegetables. So yeah, it's like uh, that's a very good. I really like the way you kind of uh, correlated those two. You you do you need like I said, you just need to have that blade continuously moving through whatever you're cutting. And you're really going to have an idea of like what, how a knife is supposed to be used, in my opinion, if you, if you can really adapt that. So going back really quick to, uh, rock cutting or chopping versus, uh, you know, like lifting the whole knife off the board and push cutting. Um, it sounds like basically, like you said, I, they're just different techniques, but it also sounds like the, the geometry, I guess the, uh, of the knife should reflect 
the style of cutting. So if it is going to, if somebody does like maybe, you know, some people just live and die by rock chopping. That's fine, obviously. But the geometry should probably reflect that use of the knife unless they have a lot of uh, extensive experience using a thinner blade, probably having a little bit more robust geometry would make sense for that style cutting versus uh, doing push cutting. You can get away with kind of a thinner geometry because you're not worried about the blade twisting or dragging across the, the, the cutting surface, right? Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. Okay. hundred percent. All right. So let's see. This next one is from... CM underscore knives underscore. He says, how important, or they say, how important is edge geometry and how important is high grip finish on the edge? Well, this is a good, I'm, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on really high, fine finishes on, uh, on chef's knives. Um, I would say that most of my finishing stones that I use for, for finishing my knives are probably in the, uh, four to six thousand grit range sure. maybe seven seven tops probably okay. um uh i don't i honestly if i'm using synthetic stones like i can stop at like three thousand grit and feel like i have a really awesome kitchen edge to go do anything you need to do especially for like butchery like for meats like i would i would never take anything over like three thousand grit if i was going to go break down a pig or something like that there's like no need, there's no need for that okay. um Sushi knives, you know, if you're cutting fish all day, like I honestly, I don't think you need to go ever need to go higher than like 8,000 grit on any kind of edge for a knife in, in a kitchen ever. I just don't okay. see it. I just don't see the, the need for it. I, I don't even know if you, I could so, tell the difference. Right. So you're talking more kind of production environment versus at home, though, just to be clear. Yeah. 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 And if or, you're at or, home, or, I, or I would mean, you say the same about being at home? I mean, dude, I, I don't know. The way I view it is like if I sharpen two knives at one at 8,000 and I finish the other one at four or 3,000 and I gave them both to somebody who cooks at home, they probably wouldn't be able to tell, tell me the difference. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I really don't know if I would be able to – I don't know if I would be able to tell the difference if one was sharpened on 8,000 versus 4,000. If it was sharpened really nicely, it's going to cut very nicely. Like – you, I, I can when I when I sharpen an edge at one thousand grit, it probably cuts paper towels better than when I cut it at, uh, you know, after my finishing stone. To be honest, because it, it's like actually like more tooth more toothy, and it sounds louder. And then I just try to refine the edge from there on one mm. more stone, and then I'm done. Yeah. Uh, regarding, I, I just had a thought. I don't think we've actually gone through, or wait, we did kind of go through your progression. When did? But I, I wasn't. I guess I, I might have missed when you use the sponge for deburring is that after your very oh. final stone or you, before you hit the final no. stone that's a good question Mareko. you're you're always on top of your game um i, I do it only after <laughs> i <laughs> i only do it after my thousand grit i don't okay i don't fuck around with it after the thousand grit stone i basically as soon as i drop i'll drop after i sharpen razor burr on both sides i'll drop on the thousand grit stone and then i'll pick up the sponge and i'll just drag it on the coarse side of the sponge, you know, ding, 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 on each side a couple times. And then so you're bouncing I'll, I'll it. You're not over. dragging it? I'm, no, I'm dragging it like at like kind of a – it doesn't have to be like a really low angle or anything like that. Just kind of like okay. at a high angle and just kind of drag it over the sponge. And I'll, I'll, I'll make a video and show you if you want to okay. later. Yeah, sure. But uh, it's just a little bit and, uh, and you can just kind of hear it like it just drags over. It's like, you know, like a little scratchy sound. 
Yeah. And then I'll go, I have a, you know, those straight razor straps that, that yep. have like a linen strap and a leather strap. Sure. I don't use the leather for anything, but the linen strap is so dope for, okay. for, for, uh, just burr removal. It's so nice. And, and then from there on the finishing stone, I won't use the sponge. I'll just go straight to the linen strap. And then I'm pretty much done with that after the linen strap. It's like finishing stone strap and then maybe a couple swipes on the linen strap and that's it. Most okay. – like if you ask John or a couple other people, they won't even do any. They'll strap on the stone and that's it. Okay. But I find like everything lines up just, just right with like a couple light strokes on some linen right after the finishing stone. And then really quick, we're gonna, I'm going to get in some questions myself for you. So when you're using a knife and it doesn't seem to be cutting, do you go, do you go straight back to the stone? It sounds like no. Uh, you, it sounds like you try with the, uh, I guess kind of the most mild abrasive and probably work your way up until, uh, so you start with strop and then probably like, do you use a honing rod or you use stones to hone? Yeah. If I'm at work, I'll use a honing rod. Okay. If you, if, and I, and I try to, there's this one that I like cause it's, 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 it's not the, it's not actually the best one, but it's like the least, the most least abrasive one that I can find. It's like a okay. black ceramic rod made by Mac, I think. Okay. And it has like it has like one that has groove sides. That thing that that side I don't I don't use it at all. It's stupid. But the yeah. smooth side, <laughs> okay. the, the smooth side is is yeah. awesome because it's it, there's there's like it's not abrasive. It really all it does is kind of realign the teeth. Okay. And I use the bare minimum pressure when I use a honing rod. Like I'll sometimes I'll fucking be in a kitchen. Some you'll hear somebody using one from like sure. around the corner, and you're like, oh my god, what is going <laughs> on over there? You sure. just hear like shing chong shing chong shing shing. You know, it's like so loud. You're like, what the fuck? Like, and I and I'll I'll do it like three times on each side, and that's it. And once okay. I kind of feel like that's ineffective, I'll probably just I'll like raise a slurry on my finishing stone and like sit there and strop it for like two minutes. Okay. And that'll usually bring the nice carbon steel. That'll bring it back pr- pretty much to new. Course, you could yeah. probably do that a couple times and get away with it. If you sure. strop your stone, if you strop your knife every day before work, when you come into work, like you come in extra early and just do it 15 minutes or do it before you leave the house, your edges will last a long time. I, I don't think I sharp. I sharp my knife like once every two weeks nowadays. Oh, wow. And I, and I use it like every day. I'll, I'll strop it a couple times, you know, and knock sure. the patina off with the natural stone. I'll knock the patina off, do a couple strops, and it's pretty much back to normal. That's one reason I like uh, that uh, 135CR3 steel because it, it strops up nicely. Like it, you don't cool. have to go back to sharpen it that often. Okay. And that's a testament to like the dude who made it too probably. And like I said, he's, he's really good. Okay. I can't wait for you to check him out. Yeah. And then you – so do you not go back to the linen strop at all then after you're done sharpening? It's all like stone stropping or honing. Um, no, not really. Cause the linen okay. strops only at home. It's okay. only at home. I That's only fair. use it when I'm like at, in my only sharpening process. If I had one at work, like you could fold a towel up at work, like not like okay. a terry cloth towel, but like a, one of the like thinner, like dishwashing towel types Okay. Yeah, and sure. fold that up like in the shape of a belt and like clamp one side down and like pull the other side out and use that as a linen strop. That would work good too, probably. Okay. But I do find that stropping on a stone kind of is, is better okay. for like trying to like realign an edge that seems kind of fatigued or something. Sure. I guess in a production environment too, using like a uh, like a linen or cloth strop probably isn't the most uh, food safe, <laughs> I guess, to keep wiping your knife on that, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This next one is from Collar, Colin, oh, sorry, Connor McCrillis. He says, just how? 
And I think he's probably referring, cause I, I, I used the picture of you cutting on the paper towel, uh, as the kind of like the question, question prompt. And, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> is there, uh, we talked about it already a little bit and it sounds like a lot of it is just properly sharpening and letting the knife do the work, but is there some technique to paper towel cutting? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, like it goes back to that whole, uh, you kind of want to either pull or push through it at a consistent speed that lets the edge do the work for you. But it, it has to be, it has to be a certain level of sharpness to cut it. Cause like you can, like if I had a knife that was sharpened by someone who was a decent sharpener, I could probably cut uh telephone paper easily with it. But sure. you try to go over to, to, to paper towels from there, from, from telephone paper, it's different. It does. It's way harder. Yeah. And you realize that you're at you're not quite at the level that you might need to be. Like there's there's like a different there's definitely a gap in between okay. like telephone paper or magazine paper and sure. paper towels. And if you and if I feel like if some people go out there and think they got their edge down and they can cut telephone paper and they, they compare the two, they'll see the difference. They really sure. will. And if you're cutting paper towel, I think you're doing a pretty good job. And I think that if you're doing that, you're you're pretty good at removing all the burrs as well. Because you'll see some people do it, and they'll 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 have like a, a pretty clean cut, and it'll get snagged up on something. You're like, oh, that was probably just a little bit of burr that didn't get quite removed. You know, it's it's really as simple as that. Burr removal's huge. Yeah. Being well, good at stropping, I because it's it's the last bit of fatigued metal that's that's in the way. You know, it's like kind how of just you said it's, that. fatigued metal. It's just kind of hanging on there a little bit, right? Yeah. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's literally metal. That's, it's no good anymore. You know, that's why okay. your knife got dull. It's fucking, it's damaged. Basically it needs to be okay. removed. And it, and the art of sharpening is removing the least amount of metal behind that and sure. keeping the, the geometry the same and trying to just bend you know, to make it good from there. That's, that's kind of the way I view it. I like it. All right, this next one is from uh, my friend Eliane LeBlanc, a super talented maker over on the East Coast. She's asking, uh, what are your thoughts on and preferences regarding natural stones versus synthetics? And, of course, we've talked about this a lot, but uh, it, it, am I right in, this, I guess, saying that, uh, you know, it just kind of depends on what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, it depends on... It depends on what you're trying to do and it depends on why you're doing it. You know, if you're okay. doing it, if you're doing it cause you enjoy it and you just want to do it. And then I dude, I would never tell anyone not to if, like, if you have the means and you're not going to break the bank to go out and, and try a natural stone and you sharpen knives on a regular basis, I don't really see you not enjoying using the stone. Sure. You know, like I don't, I don't really see that as like being an issue at all. Like, and I think you should try it. If, if you're interested in it, like, I didn't know I was interested in it until I saw it, and I was like, whoa, that's fucking cool. I want to try that. And then I got one, and that one was a decent stone. It's definitely not my favorite stone. I still have it, mainly probably because it's my first one. But, uh, you know, and then you – but it's, that's the thing. It's like a fucking rabbit hole. You get in there, <laughs> and you get one, and you like it, and you're like, all right, that was fun. <laughs> where where else can I get one of these things from? I want to see some other finishes, and I want to fucking do this and that. And you're just, now you're like, whoa, I have fucking 12 natural stones. You know, and it's like, whoa, that's why that's why I go to auto, because I feel like auto's got the fairest prices out of nice. like because re- retail stores. I mean, they literally half these dudes fly to Japan, buy stones and fly back. They, okay. they, you know, how do you how do you make money on that unless you charge a shit ton for it? You know, I don't I understand why they're doing it. I really wow. do. Nice. 
All right. This next one is from Hallmade Knives underscore Knives. He says, "What's a good starting setup that won't break the bank?" I like this question. Oh man. Um. Well, I I'll think go, I think if you do go you ahead, want, do you want to think about it for a second, and I'll tell you what my basic setup is that yeah. has been working. Okay, so my basic setup do it. has been working great for me for I don't know how long. Uh, like 12 years 14 years i've been using this setup but it literally it is a uh, a king uh 1000 6000 combination stone is the larger one and okay. with an agura stone for the 6000 side and and then i have a idaho ceramic rod it's the fine ceramic rod so it's pro- it's approximately like 1200 1500 grit that's it and cardboard i actually i love using cardboard um for stropping on and maybe you, maybe you have uh, some opinions on that, but that's my basic setup. And I think you can get one of those stones, uh, the king stones, for like around fifty, sixty bucks. You can get the honing rod for another thirty bucks, forty bucks, depending on where you get it from. Nagura stones usually about seven to eight bucks, and then yeah, that's it. And then you can get yeah. like a soaking tub from the dollar store. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll also need something eventually to flatten your stones with too. That's that's a good the call. other. That, that's the other thing that like I, I I hate to like put that in there because it's like because ah, oh, it's like, but like no I just mean like because it's like goddamn it's like one more fucking thing to buy but like <laughs> what you, you need something to flatten I would say if you really want to get into sharpening and and doing what I've been talking about which is like kind of thinning behind the edge you'll need one core stone you know four or five hundred grits probably a great way to start if you really start finding yourself like you're doing it more and you want to get faster at it you're going to want like a 200 grit because you just you'll find your you know it's fucking metal it takes a while just to, to wear off especially when you're using your fingers to do it um but uh i think like a good setup is like a 500 grit stone a thousand grit stone and like a three thousand grit stone and is in a, a flattening stone and that's really that's really all you need you can make you can make a strop out of anything and like your your cardboard thing that makes sense it's it's you know it's kind of fibrous the same way like newspaper would be too and like a lot of dudes over in japan they just finish things on like a little bit of newspaper and that's it yeah. and i and that's kind of why i use the linen strap I can't, it's, it's just like that little bit of fine fiberness that kind of realigns what micro teeth you just tried to you know i, I i've never actually looked at one of my edges under a microscope i hope i i do that someday to kind of like really assess like what's going on in there at like a microscopic level. But like, I I really do believe like you can strop it on the stones too, but like that last little like delicate touch, like really like kind of refines it just enough to where it like seems like it's cutting perfectly. And then, but like that, that'll go away. You'll, you'll go make a hundred cuts and it'll kind of feel like, Oh man, that perfect edge kind of feels like it's toast a little bit. And you swipe it like two times on a steel and then it's fine again. You know, like that's, that if you if you use a honing rod correctly, it's it can be your best friend in a kitchen for sure, sure. especially if you don't have a stone to strap on. Do you but have you have to use it correctly. Yeah. Do you have a preference? Ceramic. Ceramic. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, definitely too. not like those. Like definitely no like those those like diamond coated ones or like just the the metal ones. Like d- d- don't even bother with those sure. at all. I, I don't. I know why I don't like the diamond honing rods, but why don't you like them? Uh, because they're super aggressive and if you, if you're inconsistent in your stroke, you're going to, if you, if you have like a nice finish, like if you have a satin finished knife and you're inconsistent with your stroke, you can kiss that finish goodbye because you're just about to fucking scratch up your knife quickly on one of those. 
if you if just if you miss if you miss just a little bit, you're gonna you know scratch up your knife, and it just yeah. doesn't need to be that aggressive. And if you overuse a diamond steel, like you're you'll you'll see like edge roads that are like way out of whack, like you know like a dip in it completely because someone's just been using a steel for two months on a knife, you know something like for that. Sure. Instead of that, because some people think steels sharpen stone or sharpen knives, and it's like no, that's not. Oh, let me sharpen this real quick. It's like you're not sharpening anything. You're just you're you you're trying to realign something that probably is not even at that point anymore because you've already been doing that for two months. It's time to sharpen the knife. You know, some people well, think that of, that's how you sharpen knives. It's like uh, you, no, yeah, like no, really, you don't even need it at all. Right. And if I you have a stone to strap on, you know, you don't even need it at all. But exactly. like realistically, like realistically, you, you need that space. You don't just have a stone lying around all the time. My biggest problem with the honing rods, or especially the diamond honing rods, is that um, I think honing rods are meant to hone. But the problem is that a diamond rod, because of the aggressiveness of the abrasive on there, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a two twenty kind of fin, like two hundred twenty grit abrasive diamond abrasive on that rod. And I think the problem with it is that it actually is sharpening. It's removing material when it really should only be aligning what's happening at the edge a rod is not the best way to sharpen a knife especially if it's it's got kind of either a flat edge or a gently curved edge but not a recurve diamond rods might be great for like a recurve chopper or something that's out in the field and you're chopping down trees and stuff with but it is not awesome yeah. for chef's knives um so that's that's you know but you basically hit all all my pet peeves about uh <laughs> diamond honing rods because they're just too much of a pain in the ass um something i want to get back to you talked about getting a hold of a grinder um how what part of your polishing process uh that you usually do on stones do you think you'll start doing on the grinder then? uh just like the the uh the mass removal of metal that I might need to do or reprofiling. If like someone has repairs for like broken tips or, you know, any kind of big chips that would be like on, if I did on stones would just suck and otherwise would be kind of an easy fix yeah. if I had a grinder or at least once I got good at using okay. the grinder it would be an easy fix probably I should say. But, uh, that, and then yeah, like, sure. you know, John showed me some stuff that he, he does a lot of, he can do a lot of like polishing. He does polishing techniques and stuff with the grinder with like scotch bright belts and stuff that were pretty neat when he does like mirror finish oh, knives wow. and stuff like that. So, uh, there, I think that there'll be a lot of experimentation too. Cause I have a lot of, uh, blanks here and other knives, uh, testers that we've used for the commodity project and stuff like that, that I'll have good blanks just to like practice right. on and di try different belts and stuff. But I, I want to get into using it for a lot of different things. Hopefully if anything, just like a quick refinish on, on certain knives, like, you know, the hand sanded knives that, that need to be thinned and sharpened. I can just do like a quick, like scratch bike, scratch bright, like vertical finish on it. That looks kind of satiny and just get, you know, something quick that I don't have to charge people so much money to do like nice work, you know, cause I can get it done in a much quicker time. For sure. That's the end goal. Really. Right. Right. No, I like it. I didn't realize that John used belt grinders at all. I thought he was all either stone wheels or stone. Oh, he, no, he uses a, um, yeah, he, has, he uses a belt grinder for different things. Yeah. He showed me some tricks that he uses it for. It's pretty, pretty fun stuff. But yeah, he also has a, a horizontal 120 grit, grit wheel. That's totally rad. I wish I had one of those. It's like a rotating wheel that kind of drips water on it. And it just, I mean, it's, it's aggressive. It shoots like sparks when you use it, but it's, it's super fast and, it's super oh, wow. fast. 
and super awesome. I think it's probably like a $5,000 contraption from Japan. So I'll probably never have one, but <laughs> it's definitely like makes, it makes sharpening like sure. single bevels for him, like much faster than like just doing it on stones, especially like re- repair yeah, work and stuff it. like that. Nice. Well, when it comes to belts, we got a sponsor for you. It's combat abrasives. Arnie hit it. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> get through the chopper (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) okay so we've you know it's been a i think a very good solid two hours good conversation i I have i've i've got some good takeaways from our our conversation so far um but i think it's a good there's you know you got better things to do than chat with me all day (laughs) um so I want to I want to let you get back to it, but really quick, is there anybody that you would like to uh, give a shout out to, um, and kind of do a community showcase or feature around knives, sharpening knives, and all that um, kind of stuff? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of people, man. It's be kind of hard to. I'll name a couple. Like I I, I really like Joe Joe Scrum Halcyon Forge is one of my all time favorite dudes just to be around in general. Uh, we're we're really good friends. Uh, he makes awesome stuff. Um, Yannick is, Yannick is my new, like, uh, man crush I have really when it comes to knife making, you'll, you'll see his work. It's, it's literally like, like, it's like exactly what I look for in a knife basically. And, uh, he does it on a consistent okay. basis and he, and he, and he really sharpens like, and, and does stonework like the same way I do. So it, it's like an extra like added bonus. Oh, no. God damn it. <laughs> Can you hear me? I I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can. Oh my god. <laughs> this fucking connection. This is Okay. Uh I'm sorry everybody for the complications that have been happening. I think a lot of it's happening from my end. Uh we're going to continue this conversation kind of in an unorthodox way, but I got uh kev on on the phone on speaker and we're just gonna try to finish up these last couple minutes uh this way so again please forgive uh (laughs) the kind of the the change in the audio so all right kev you were talking about uh joe oh yeah yeah joe joe and yannick are uh are two people two people are uh that I think people should look at for, uh, for if they're looking for knives that I the style of knives that I like to use the most, I should say. And Joe's been doing really a lot of a lot of really neat Damascus that uh, he wasn't doing so much a couple years ago that are are really coming out really beautifully these days. And he's just he's just such a fun guy. He's a really fun guy to be around. Cool. And I hope that, and Yannick actually invited me to go out to France, and I, I was actually trying to plan a trip for October, but you know, like I said. Doesn't look like anyone's going anywhere anytime soon. Right. So hopefully I'll get to do that in the next couple of years, but we'll see. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm trying to think. So those two, and you also referenced John Broida of Japanese Knife Imports a couple times. Um, yeah. And again, I, what's the name of the the product, the 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 knives that you've been working and helping to create and bring to reality? Again. Kamadi knives. Kamadi. K E M A D I. Yeah. Perfect. And you can find that. They can find that on uh, on my page. Cool. 
Well, thank you everybody through hang or for hanging out uh, and through. <laughs> I probably, hopefully, you know, Craig's a wizard, so it probably sounds great uh, on the podcast. But right now, it's been <laughs> we've been disconnected. I don't know how many different times trying to make this work, but uh, we got through it. Kev, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to sit down and talk yeah. with me and to give your chef's perspective as well as the knife sharpener's perspective. Uh, I think it's been really helpful. I know it's been really helpful for me, and there's been a lot of positive takeaways, and so I hope there, uh, if anybody's been paying attention, there's been a lot of positive takeaways for them as well. Nice. I appreciate everything. Thank you for thinking of me. Absolutely, brother. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.